Welcome to a very special episode of Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And in today's episode, in which we have gathered together interviews and chats that we've had from our many years on the air with our very dear friend and passionate animal advocate, Sherry Kolb, who, as you may know, died last month. Yeah, these interviews range from our first encounter with Sherry when she came on to talk about her book, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger and Other Questions People Ask Vegans, to an interview along with Michael Dorff on their book, Beating Hearts, Animal Abortion and Animal Rights, to a discussion I had with her on the Animal Law Podcast about her choice to teach a law school class in animal rights rather than animal law, and a few shorter appearances to enlighten us on specific issues. They are all characterized by her incisive thinking, her clarity of thought, her sometimes biting sense of humor, and fundamentally, her unrelenting advocacy for animals. I'm not going to say that I always agreed with Sherry about everything, but I never came away from a conversation with her without thinking more deeply and with more nuance about the topic at hand. That's very well put. We should mention that Sherry was an extraordinary thinker and theorist on many levels, She was valedictorian of her high school class and then valedictorian of her class at Columbia College. After Harvard Law School, she clerked with Second Circuit Judge Wilfred Feinberg and then Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman. She won a bunch of teaching awards, was frequently quoted in the New York Times and elsewhere, and was a prolific writer, including on her regular columns on verdicts and Dorf on Law. She was also just a really wonderful person. In spite of her extraordinary intelligence and accomplishments, she never talked down to anyone. And she had a truly amazing talent for making complicated things easy to understand. And we miss her a lot. Now here to start off is Sherry's interview on episode 191, talking about her book, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger and Other Questions People Ask Vegans. And following that, we will be playing for you in order of appearance, some of the many interviews and talks and chats that Sherry has given with our hen house. And sometimes she was joined by her husband, Michael Dorff, who we also love dearly. So I hope that you are ready for this because there was no other mind quite as great as Sherry Kolb. Welcome to our hen house, Sherry. Great to be here. So great to have you here. We are thrilled about your new book, which is not only full of great information, but has such a compelling title, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger and Other Questions People Ask Vegans. I feel like this book has a lot of mainstream appeal, not just for folks like me and Marianne who would look at this book and say, yeah, that's annoying. Why do people ask that? But also (laughs) for people who might actually be well-intentioned and when they say, do you mind if I order the cheeseburger? So I'm just really excited about about this book. And clearly the answers to the questions vegans get asked can be a bit more complex than than we will be able to cover here. But perhaps we'll ask you a few of the questions that we all get asked and you can give us your elevator answer and then people can consult the book for more detailed responses, if that's cool with you. That sounds great. So let's start with a few questions from one of our favorite anti-vegans, Emily Meredith, who writes the Activist Watch column for the Animal Agriculture Alliance. She recently 
wrote a, a column complaining about farm sanctuaries, someone, not something campaign. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I'll let Marianne talk about it a little. Yeah. So in that article, which, you know, she says in the article that this column isn't for people who, who, uh, want to be vegan. I think it's the perfect column for people who want to be vegan because it's so entertaining in so many ways. But in this <laughs> column, she managed to trot out a lot of the reasons people use for not considering veganism. So I thought maybe we would just get you to respond to a few of her comments. And one of the things she says, if you make, and I'm not going to try to do her voice because I get in trouble whenever I try to do people's voices. <laughs> if you make the choice to survive, other things have to die. Whether you eat a f- alfalfa or chicken, everyone and everything has to eat. Humans since the dawn of the hominid have made the conscious decision to survive at the detriment of other living things. What would you say to that, Sherry? Well, I think I would say that there's some truth to that and that, you know, just by living, there there are things that will, you know, die. We take up space, we take up air, but... I think it's a really Hobbesian sort of sad view if if you think that you need to kill animals just to, you know, to exist. And alfalfa is quite different from a sentient being. I'd be I'd feel sad for someone who couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she goes on to say that um that in our evolution we have existed by finding food whether that food is animal vegetable or mineral i'm kind of wondering what what the minerals are like yeah many of us are eating rocks but uh, (laughs) maybe salt but it is something that comes up a lot people say what about plants how do you respond to that um well i think i mean the first thing to to do i think is to take a deep breath because because the question can be a very frustrating one for vegans, I think. And it just seems like it's not, how can they be serious? But I I think it's useful to, you know, to respond authentically and honestly. And what I usually say is that from what we know, plants don't appear to have experiences. They don't appear to suffer and to feel pain. And, And that really distinguishes plants from animals. And I think most people sort of get that if they're not engaged in a debate. They, you know, they would make an effort not to step on a dog and they might not make the same effort not to step on a blade of grass. So it just seems to me a very basic idea that people understand that animals and plants are different and we sort of get it as children. And then somehow as we get older, our, we rationalize so much that you are sort of the rationalizing species instead of the rational species. Yeah, I love that line. Yeah, that's, that is so true, especially when it comes to this issue. So Emily goes on to say, oh, she, so she's lumping plants and animals together, but then she, she takes another turn and she says, my point being, regardless of whether a pig can play a video game, possesses a greater cognitive ability than a toddler, or whatever other factoid serves as this week's basis for an animal rights campaign, animals are not people. Uh, I think that brings up the whole human exceptionalism argument that that people. This is Emily's version of it, but people are constantly bringing it up in one way or one way or another. How do you respond to that? Um, well, I think that it's you know that it's true that um, animals are not. Well, we are animals. So I guess people are animals, but not all animals are people. And that you know that's true. And you know I I think the fact that a pig can play a video in a way it sort of upsets me that 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 we even feel the need, you know, to tell people that, although once we know about it, it is interesting to tell people. But I don't think that we should be measuring other animals by what, you know, what we're capable of doing. Because if we ask ourselves, you know, why do we show respect for other humans? Why don't we kill 
and eat other humans and hurt other humans, that it's not because they can play video games or have any, you know, particular cognitive capacities. It's because they, you know, because they experience the world and we don't want to make them suffer in that experience. Um, so, you know, I think that in a way, the reason we've come up with this video game experiment or whatever to talk to her about is just to try to impress upon her that animals are not all that different and that we wouldn't have had to say that to begin with if she were sort of able to look at at, at why we care about others in a, in a more holistic way. Yeah, the, I, I think that's a perfect response. And and another the thing that she she manages in four paragraphs to bring up so many of the questions that people do get asked, but she says, if you're one of the 97% of Americans that finds meat, milk, and egg products delicious, then you're likely and hopefully not going to put a whole lot of stock in Farm Sanctuary's most recent ploy to grab your emotional attention. I think in, in spite of her being snarky here, she does bring up this idea that veganism is the end of pleasure. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I, I think that, that that's another, I mean, I have a chapter in my book about this, so what about pleasure? And I think that for, for some of us, it, you know, if someone says, well, what about pleasure? I love cheese, you know, you know, some of us feel like saying, you know, so what do so you love cheese? You know, like what if, what if the only way you could have pleasure in cheese would be to harm animals, then we should give it up. But I think we have an easier answer to that, which is we, there are vegan cheeses and there are lots of vegan food. It's just a delicious, amazing thing. And when I come into Manhattan, um, I love to just go to vegan restaurant after vegan restaurant. It's just the, the food is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so it's not deprivation. And that, so I think it's worth pointing out. I mean, as an ethical matter, I don't really think we should have to match cheese in order to get off the ground. But in fact, we do. We can. So, um, you know, the fact that someone loves milk, meat, and eggs, is that an argument? No, it's not an argument. You know, some people really love dog fighting. You know, some people really love bullfighting or, you know, stomping on animals. I mean, you know, the fact that you love something is really not an argument for doing it. It's just why you want to do it. So what do you say when someone asks you if you mind if they order the cheeseburger? I hate when people ask me that. You know, it's funny, even having written a book, and, and you know, I kind of wish I could, talk, like, I feel like saying, you know, well, do you have an hour? <laughs> um, and, you know, but what I usually say is, um, do you really want to know? <laughs> And then yeah. they usually say no, <laughs> and they, you know, or they say, oh, um, I guess I won't then, <laughs> you know, or it's like, obviously you don't want me to order it. So I think, um, you know, so I don't think there's a really good soundbite answer other than to say, like, you've asked me a really big question, even though you may think that you've just asked me a kind of politeness question, like, do you mind if I use the, the restroom? Um it's actually a big question because this is a really foundational ethical choice that, that we've made as vegans. And so it's not like someone saying, oh, do you mind if I order gluten um, <laughs> you know, or something uh, like yeah. that? It's like we're not committed. It's, so, it's the whole gluten thing. It's like people oh. are so confused. Like I'll say, do you have anything vegan? They say, no, but we have something that's yeah. gluten-free. And it's like, well, I'm not looking for something that where you've subtracted an ingredient. I'm just looking for <laughs> vegan food. Um but anyway, the so I think that just making it clear that, wow, that's a big question, 
And, and then, you know, I, cause yeah, if you're asking whether I'll still eat with you, then the answer is yes. But if you're asking whether like I'm indifferent, no, I'm not indifferent. Yeah. I love, I, I love all of those responses. I'm going to write all that down. <laughs> Thanks. I was actually, I talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast. I was with someone who was telling a story about how he had gained this appreciation for eating steak and how he should do it slowly and really savor each bite. And his, um, his wife who was at the table kind of was like giving him the eye, like Jasmine's at the table and he stopped and was like, should I, um, should I eat? Okay. Tofu. I mean, tofu. Should should I not talk about, like, should I just stop my story now? And I just, I just sat there. I didn't even say anything. And he continued to have this fight with himself about, you know, whether it was okay to continue to have this talk about like a carcass. It's, it's funny what comes up when for people, when we kind of reflect back onto them, what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. I, I love your rising anxiety segment <laughs> for that reason. Cause it really is true. It's like you walk in and suddenly all they can talk about is how much they love bacon or, you know, or tell some kind of soul, you know, heartfelt story about, about their relationship with some piece of meat. Right. Um, and then you're not supposed to mind. I, I remember once someone told me, he said, I have a joke and, and you're, you're probably going to find this offensive, but just bear with me. <laughs> it's like this unbelievable joke that turned out to be like offensive, both as an animal rights person and as a woman. <laughs> like, and he's like, it is funny. Right. And, and, you know, I'm not laughing. I'm not, I'm actually not finding it funny. And it's like, well, do you want me to say it's funny? <laughs> like, Yeah. It's like the whole, no offense, but really <laughs> ugly, but no offense. Oh, right. well, you know, that would have hurt my feelings, except you said no offense. So It's like when people say with all due respect and you know that that, that means they think none is due. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm not racist, but... <laughs> the same right. shit. But there seems to be a lot of confusion for vegans about how to use the health argument. Veganism, it doesn't have to be healthy. And if you start talking about the health benefits of veganism, you're talking about a diet that eliminates some of many people's favorite foods, such as the plant-based meats or sweets or oil. How do you approach the health issue without getting mired down in a nutrition debate? You mentioned gluten. I feel like yeah. this is sort of related a Little. Yes. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, it's a tough question. It's a really good question. Um, my view is that when I'm talking about veganism, I'm comparing veganism to the way the standard American diet, and I'm not going to get anywhere if I start telling people, you know, it's really important to get enough kale. <laughs> you know, it's like, exactly. they're, for, yeah. they'll often say, yeah, what is that? What's kale? You know, it's like, you know, they, I mean, to them, like their, their big green vegetable is the sprig of parsley on their, on their steak. So, um, you know, so I think that just, just to open people's eyes, it's important to give people food that is delicious and satisfying and great. And, you know, and then you can, you know, let people know that they might want to also be aware that there are other features to a healthy diet besides veganism. Because I think, I think veganism is healthier than the standard American diet, but it can be a lot healthier. And then sort of depends on, you know, on how far you want to go with that. And then I think there's an independent reason to be vegan, which is, which is the compassionate ethical reason, regardless of whether you're going to be a junk food vegan or whether you're going to be a nutritarian or whether you're going to be something in between. So I teach an animal rights seminar 
And every week I bake a pastry for my students. Wow. Um, and obviously, you know, if all they ate was that, that would not be an ideal <laughs> um, diet. But I want to dislodge, it's so hard to dislodge this image people have of vegan food as deprivation. And I think that that is so important to do. I feel like such a bad teacher now. <laughs> And I actually think I'm going to enroll in Professor Kolb's class. <laughs> I wasted I wasted all this time on, on on doing such stupid things, and and what I should be obviously what I should be doing is bake. Well, maybe I should have Jasmine be baking for me. Probably work out better. <laughs> so, how do you deal with the people who point out the the imperfections in veganism? Shall we call them the fact? And, and this. Pro, this kind of issue can, can rise for vegans, too, who sometimes really embrace perfectionism a little more than, than anybody is really able to because nothing is perfect and none of us yeah. is completely innocent in this world. Questions that pe- people bring up, such as animals who die when plants are harvested, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. And um, that organic agriculture uses manure. Like, How do you address that, that none of us is really living innocently here? Um, well, it's a really important question, and I think it's really useful to acknowledge that, yes, you know, we are not, none of us is innocent, and none of us is perfect, but what we're trying to aim for is to, is better, and that, you know, when, yes, it's true that animals are killed when plants are harvested, but one thing that's useful to point out is that a lot more animals are killed when plants are harvested to feed animals, um, because, so much of the land that's used right now is used to create feed for, for animals who are then going to be slaughtered. So, you know, so you eliminate a lot of that by becoming vegan, unless you live exclusively on hunting, which I think very few people do. Um, so, you know, but if you're, if you're eating, you know, having a field of alfalfa that, or soy that's grown for, for cows, all of that is, is, you know, that's killing animals and harvesting. And it's not to feed people. Um, and another thing I'd point out is that as more people become vegan, methods of harvesting and veganic farming becomes much more plausible um, economically. So, uh, you know, I'm not... I'm not personally thrilled at all that the way we, you know, the way that um, plants are grown now involves hurting animals, and I think we can do better. But in order for us to do better, there have to be more vegans who care about this stuff. Because, um, you know, we can't ask somebody who is creating grain in order to feed animals who are going to be slaughtered. We can't say, well, can you use a more humane combine? Right. It's not going to make sense to them. How do you address people who come at this from a religious perspective, who they maybe believe things such as that people are special in the eyes of God, or people have souls and animals don't, or maybe people tell you that they're kosher, which is what God requires? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I mean, I I think that that's a really great question, because I grew up actually Orthodox Jewish, and so I know how that feels. Like, yes, animals are, are, are different. We're, we're more advanced and so on. And I think one thing is useful to do is to say, yes, I mean, we have certain capacities that animals lack and we are special and animals aren't given commandments and things like that. But, you know, to quote, I guess, Spider-Man with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. I think Voltaire also said that. Um, and, you know, so 
And part of being, I think part of being religious is being very conscious about what we do and conscious about using our power in a way that's beneficial because we really have the power to create and to destroy more than animals have um, the power to do either of those things. Um, and you see, you know, and at least from, you know, I, and I think this is true of every religious tradition, you see consciousness about animals. It's not animal rights per se, but it's a sense of we need to care about them, like not working animals on the Sabbath, things like that. And I think that gives you a, a kind of a primitive sense of animals counting and that if animals count, you know, a lot more follows from that, right? You look at the Bible and it talks about the animals and the slaves resting on the Sabbath. And we we can take from that that there shouldn't be slaves, not that, you know, we should have slaves but have them rest on the Sabbath. And so I think if we took some of the lessons from the Bible in the way that, you know, God communicates, you know, to the extent that you believe in God, you believe there's some flaw in the human who's receiving the communication, and that's going to affect how it's recorded. So, um, you know, I think that we see that with, you know, that some of the horrible things that various, that all religions, every religion has something in there that even the most devout are going to say, well, I wouldn't do that. Um, so I think we can be critical even if we're devout and that there are, there are the raw materials for veganism and just about every religious tradition. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, and I, I think it's one of the things that frustrates so many people in, in the movement that religion seems to be largely untapped as a as because people who are religious do live their lives according to ethical boundaries that are set by their particular faith, and and most of them do allude to animals in some way, even if not exactly in the way that we would, and yeah. yet and yet the behavior is not there yet, but the potential is enormous. I, I, I know that there's a lot of these questions have something in common and they can be very frustrating. And that's that a lot of times they don't really seem to be authentic concerns of people. Mm -hmm. People obviously don't care at all about their health or suddenly worried about whether we're getting enough protein. <laughs> And people yeah. who just really don't care at all about plants are now worried about, you know, whether we're harming Plant plants. genocide. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and, and this happens to me, too. Like, the same person will ask the same question over and over, clearly demonstrating that they have completely forgotten that they asked it and <laughs> forgotten my answer. Yeah. So what's really going on with some of these crazy questions? Are they just, are they always coming from an authentic place or... or or are there other issues that, that make people ask these nutty questions? I think I think both of those things are true. I think that people, I mean, occasionally you'll have an unadulterated motive driving the question. Like if somebody yells, well, you kill plants, I, I don't think they're trying to open a dialogue. <laughs> and um, and then you'll have somebody who's really curious and says, you know, I want to go vegan, but I've heard I don't get enough protein. How do I make sure that I do? Uh, and that's completely open and honest and authentic. And then you get people, I think, mostly in between where people are feeling somewhat defensive. You know, we, you know, like Jasmine was saying earlier about the, um, the, you know, they feel themselves reflected in you. You know, you serve as this mirror. Suddenly they're not, you know, eating meat becomes salient in a way that it wasn't before we walked in the room. And they're, you know, they don't quite have to deal with that, but they don't want to feel guilty. And so they say things that will help comfort 
themselves. And so they'll, they'll make their kind of half-baked arguments. And I think at the same time, they're also curious. You know, they also are thinking, well, is there anything, is there a real argument that maybe this other person has that I might find convincing? And so my approach, I, I try, the, the approach I aim for is to try to see the curiosity and the open-mindedness in the question, even though there, there may also be this frustrating kind of gotcha feature to it, um, and then that way I can answer it in a less defensive way, and they might receive my answer in a less defensive way, too. Hmm. That's a really empowering way of looking at it. How much do you think that people really know about what's going on with animals? Because I'm wondering if the only folks who know are the activists and the industry. What about yeah. everyone else? If they don't know... Why don't they know? <laughs> I know. I, it's a great question. I, I think a lot of them don't know. Um, I mean, I'm amazed sometimes when I, I still remember I was attending a lecture uh, at, at at Cornell where I teach, and um, and somebody was talking about about. Um, something that made me think of animals, which usually that, that happens anyway. But, um, and so I raised my hand and they said something about slaughter and how, you know, and how differently we treat different kinds of animals. So we would never be thinking about slaughtering dogs, but then we have slaughtering uh, cows and it's, and it's horrific, but people think it's okay because there's a law. And someone turned to me, one of my colleagues, and said, you mean they don't tell animals in a nice way? Oh my God. <laughs> and and I said, well, what? <laughs> I, mean, I was just sort of thrown because I didn't. I assumed everyone knew that slaughterhouses are horror shows. And you know, he's like, well, they have laws, right? So it's you know, it's, and and I was just kind of stunned. But people really, and this isn't you know, this is an educated person. It's not just somebody who you know just just walked out the door and had never met anyone before. I mean, this is a really bright educated, sophisticated person, but a lot of people don't know. And I don't know why they don't know. I think they don't, they sort of don't want to know. Uh, I think that's part of it. They don't want to know. And then, you know, the, the way they come back with the same question, um, like Marianne was saying earlier, that like, there's one guy who says, well, why don't you eat dairy? And then I'll explain it. And then like a year later, I'll say, well, what's wrong with dairy? And I feel like saying, <laughs> yeah. I think because of all the dairy you're eating, you're developing dementia. <laughs> Um, you know, so the, it, 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 I think, you know, the best approach is to just not assume that people know, to try to explain it in a very patient way so that, you know, and that maybe it's it's the 10th time they've heard it. Yeah, it really is frustrating. And, and it's, it's hard to know why we can't get that knowledge to, to stick. And it's even, even when we do, Knowledge doesn't seem to be enough. Even people who find out the truth, well, maybe they completely shut it down almost immediately. And I, I, I do find that my students come into my class not knowing anything. I mean, not all of them. Some of them are animal rights activists. But the ones who aren't animal rights activists are shocked to find out the truth. But even when, even when you know, unfortunately, my students sometimes and, and other people find out the truth, they really often don't change, aside from the ones who are sociopaths. Not my students. They're sociopaths. I mean, um, you know, who think it's... Uh, it just doesn't matter what we do to animals. What what process is at work there in people's minds? Why, e even when they know they don't change, how do they justify continuing to support factory farming? Mm -hmm. um, it's a good question. I think that we, I think we make an assumption that 
we are run by principle and logic and knowledge. And that, I mean, that's kind of the, the story on humans and we kind of accept it. But really, you know, we're very irrational creatures in a lot of ways. And we do things because we're used to doing them. And people are very scared to change the way they live and the way they act. And so I think what happens is that, you know, they find something out and then there's all of this mobilization to try to figure out how that doesn't matter and how they don't need to change anything, um, you know, so that they can keep living exactly the way they always have. So, you know, and I think the way, I think that what what's amazing to me is that I, I have friends who became dietary vegans because they had high cholesterol and, you know, they really weren't thinking about the animals at all. And then once they did stop eating them, they suddenly started noticing. And a friend of mine said to me, you know, suddenly I'm noticing, like, why are these people talking about Mitt Romney putting his dog on top of the car and there they are eating animals? Mm. You know, and it was great to hear, like, my friend say that because we hadn't talked about anything, but this just came right to her that suddenly she saw, and she said, and I'm looking at my leather couch and then thinking, I don't like that my couch is made out of a cow's skin. Yeah. Um, so there's a, I think that there's a process when, when you live a certain way three times a day or more to try to rationalize that and that if information comes through that's incompatible and it causes anxiety, their tendency is either to forget the information or to try to come up with some, you know, response, however, half-baked so that they don't need to think about it. One of the things you talk about in the book is what the animal rights movement can learn from the gay rights movement. Can you expand on that? Sure. I think that um, that the gay rights movement has been as successful as it has in part because it's been out and proud. And I think that that's a really important positive thing because um, I think back to, you know, when I, when I was a law clerk at the Supreme Court and, and Justice Powell was on, uh, at the time he was already retired, but he would say, you know, I never met a homosexual. And the thing was that that was not true. Um, and the big joke was that he had more gay clerks than any other justice. Um, and, but he didn't know that. And so it could, he couldn't, he didn't evolve, uh, at least while he was on the court on that issue because he didn't realize that he not only met but really cared deeply about people who are gay. And I think, I mean, it's understandable that people didn't tell him because it would have, you know, they were worried that they'd lose their job. So it wasn't, um, this is not at all a critique of of that. But, um, But just I think that familiarity allows people to feel empathy in a way that they otherwise couldn't. And suddenly you care about people. Like, I know people. And so don't, you know, don't give them a hard time because I don't want them to be discriminated against. Whereas before it was an abstract issue. It becomes much more concrete for people. And I think that's true for vegans as well. You know, when um, before I knew any vegans, it didn't really even cross my mind to be vegan or, you know, I'm not even sure I know what it was. And then I met someone who's vegan. I met someone else who was vegan. And suddenly, you know, I mean, I became a vegan eventually, but in between there, there was, uh, well, I've got to take this seriously because people I know and respect have made this choice. So I can't just dismiss it anymore. I can't just kind of make it an abstract thing. So I think that 
and the gay rights movement has been very good at, you know, reaching out and saying, look, I am that person that you're assuming is some kind of boogeyman. It's here. It's just me, your neighbor. And that that's a really effective thing that, that vegans can do too. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think the idea of being out as a vegan is is easy. I mean, all you do is get asked a lot of annoying questions. People <laughs> generally don't beat you up for it. So it's easy and, uh, and, and has so much power. I mean, that is how people change, is because the people around them are, are changed. Um, you also have... have published in the area of gender equality, and I know that's a, a strong interest of yours, and you've now published this book about animal rights. Can you talk about a little bit how those two movements are related? Um, yes, I, I think they're really very strongly related because, and first you have a sort of general uh, oppression framework where you have somebody who's more powerful than somebody else and who exploits the less powerful and, and commits violence and then comes up with a whole methodology about why the proper place of the weaker one is being at the receiving end of that violence. And we have that, you know, certainly if you look at sort of patriarchy and, and, uh, and women's oppression, the notion that women are properly in almost property, <laughs> properly the property of men, and that, you know, even now, um, you know, in the 21st century, it's still more difficult to get a conviction for rape when the woman has had a lot of big sexual history than it is for if the woman is a virgin. And I think that tells us something about women being valued as sort of commodities, as sexual and reproductive commodities, um, rather than as equals. And, you know, and animals, too, are sort of in this position of, well, we have, we have the power to use them and to consume them, and we tend to think of them as really just those consumer items. You know, people see a pig... Um, pictured on a barbecue store, you know, restaurant. And then they're like, oh, good, I'm going to have some ham. And, and it's sort of as though this is this animal is nothing but a commodity. Um, so it's sort of, an ex- I think, an extreme version of the, of the oppression that women have suffered. Um, and then more, more concretely, you know, the dairy and egg industries are very much about uh, exploiting female animals' reproductive capacities in a very extreme way. And that mirrors sort of the way in which um, female humans have had their reproductive capacities kind of owned and and manipulated and dominated, um, you know, historically. Well, there are so many more questions that we want to ask you, but I feel like this will be the longest podcast episode in the history of podcasts. <laughs> you're just, you're, you're full of so much wisdom and, and, and I love the way you communicate. So I, I strongly encourage people to get a copy of mind if I order the cheeseburger and other questions people ask vegans, uh, which is published by Lantern Books. And Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today in our hen house and for, for helping us to work out some of these questions that every, I'm going to just make a generalization. Everyone who listens to this gets asked, period. Mm-hmm. And I, I so appreciate you. It's, it's so validating 
to hear from you, you know, things that go through our minds all the time. We don't necessarily know if they go through other people's minds. And now we do (laughs) because it's in your books. Mind if I order the cheeseburger. So Sherry, thank you so much. I so appreciate your joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. Welcome to our henhouse, Sherry Kolb. It's great to be here. So great to have you. Thank you for being here. And thank you for being here, Michael Dorff. Thanks for inviting us. We're very big fans. And you drove down all the way from Ithaca. We're big fans, too. It was an easy drive. Well, thank you very much. We are so deeply appreciative that you are out there speaking up for animals and for so many others. And I'm so excited to hear uh, all about the newest book that you're working on, which comes out in, what, like... Nine months or so? Something like that. It's like you're, birth, you're birthing right. a book. Yes. Well, yes, we're in the, one of the yeah. trimesters. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, a perfectly apt uh, analogy. <laughs> well, and we're going to be going back to your first book in a minute, which is called Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger. And I am going to ask you what I'm sure nobody else has, which is how you answer that question. <laughs> I'm sure that that's a, something you've not thought about at all. But before we do, tell us about the book that you have coming out that you co-wrote. Yeah. So it's called Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights. Uh, Talking about animal rights, we find people really don't get excited at all. So we wanted to add something equally uncontroversial <laughs> as a way of just, you know, making sure we don't yeah. make any waves. Yeah, I like how you live in the comfort zone. That's right. We do. Really a lot. And there, there really are genuine similarities here in, in these two movements, aren't there? there? Absolutely. In, in both movements, and, and some people have, have really called this to our attention. People say, well, why aren't you... Uh, why are you pro-choice, which we are, if you're in favor of animal rights? And similarly, people will say, well, if you really care about life, why do you eat animals in the other direction? Mm. So in both cases, you have vulnerable life, innocent life that people take, and people take it for reasons that aren't exclusively about protecting their own lives, but have other um, bases too. So we see these two movements as both trying to protect vulnerable life in different ways. And we thought it would be interesting to explore why the two movements tend not to overlap almost at all. So yeah, it really is fascinating. I know that before we started recording, you were also saying that you have met animal rights activists of all stripes, and you've met animal rights activists who are very pro-choice. Did you say that that is mostly the case? Yeah, so the animal rights movement is not a big movement on either the left or the right, but it tends to be more sort of progressive types who tend not to overlap that much with the pro-life movement, although you have some. Yeah. And so those people who we thought, you know, were, were very sincere in these commitments got us thinking. And in addition, I would occasionally get nasty comments on our blog uh, whenever... Wait, nasty comments on a blog? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's yeah, hard yeah, to believe. It's very uh, unusual. Um, when either of us would write about animal rights, it'd say, oh, well, what do you think about fetuses? That's, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so we decided to take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah, well, it is serious. And I mean, it, one of the main principles behind animal rights is respect of sentience. Yes. And certainly there's an issue of sentience in abortion as well. So how do they relate? Yes. Well, that's, I'm glad you brought up sentience because that's exactly... Define before yes. we talk well, about Well, the ability it. to feel, the ability to experience the world for ill or for well. And in the case of abortion, this is one of the differences for us between abortion and animal rights, which is that most abortions happen prior to a fetus acquiring the ability to feel anything. And so for our, in our minds, those abortions don't raise the kind of moral issues that killing an animal for food or for clothing raise. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are late-term abortions, which we think are very difficult, more, pose serious moral questions. Much We're more st- complex questions. Yes. 
Terry, when I saw you speak, and, and you were speaking there too, was it at Cornell, right? At Cornell recently? Oh, yes. Yeah, at Cornell Law School. I, I was so blown away by the fact that you got, like, the, what I'm just going to say it, like, the stupidest questions from some of the audience members. And Marianne, really I, stupid questions from an audience? I was like, I just was like, I, you probably could hear me going, oh my God, like from the audience. Oh, that's my activist. Yeah. yeah. And you managed to validate what they were saying and then actually answer it. How, how do you deal with this kind of, I don't know, uh, ignorance at large between people who are just really trying to figure it out? Maybe they haven't thought it through. Can you tell me how to be a better advocate? <laughs> well, I think the, I think what you said is exactly right, that a lot of people have not thought about this issue before. There are plenty of issues I haven't thought about before, and I know I would ask questions that would be regarded as strange and silly or yeah, whatever. We all ask them at some yeah. point. And so I try to think about it from the perspective of the person asking the question and assume good faith. It's not always an accurate assumption, but it's useful to me to assume this person is asking this question about, you know, from a good place and try to understand it and see where they're coming from and give it the best possible face it can have and then respond to it mm. rather than just trying to say, oh, well, that's dumb. You yeah, know? that reminds me of that time you were asked where do you get your protein? And you were like, oh my God. And then you realized she was actually asking, where do you get your protein? Because she didn't honey, know. For yeah. bringing that up on our uh, Can show. I get back to the abortion question yeah. a little bit? Because sure. we talked about the early term abortions, and those are a simpler question. But what about that more complex question? What about late term abortions? You clearly have sentience there. Sentience, the ability to experience the world, is the thing that animal rights activists respect so much. So why doesn't it matter when it comes to uh, fetuses? So our view is that it does matter uh, that many late-term abortions, that is, abortions post-sentience, may be immoral, but it doesn't mean that they should be illegal because you need an additional justification in order for the state to step in. Um, in an early version of the book, we took this out of the, the final version, uh, we said you that... You heard it here, uh, only here. <laughs> ...that in some sense we are pro-choice about, about both abortion and animal rights in the sense that we're not forcing people to be vegan. Now, I think the reason we took it out is that in a future world we might uh, when enough people had come around to see the, the moral issues. But whether you make something illegal is a very complex question that implicates not just morality but pragmatic uh, considerations, what about unintended consequences, and so forth. So yeah. our, our, our view about the morality is not necessarily the same as our view about yeah. what the law should say. So that even though it may be an immoral decision in one sense or, another, or it may not be, mm -hmm. it's a decision that should be made by the woman who's carrying the child in her body rather than by the state. Correct. Yes, yeah. and I would, I would add to that, because this is, this is something I want to taken out, so <laughs> I, I think that, that, that you're sensing the contention. Um, but my view is that there's a, there's a difference even with a late-term abortion between banning abortion versus banning animal use, even though I, I think both are equally, I, I, I don't think either is, is a good idea at this point, but I think forcing a woman to take a pregnancy to term imposes a much more serious assault on her bodily integrity than it would forcing people to stop killing animals. And one difference between the two is that not doing violence to somebody else generally doesn't require that much of you. But if the one against whom you're not doing violence lives in your body, then you really don't have the middle choice of just refraining from violence. You have to either commit violence directly 
or allow it to live in your body and do all sorts of things to your body that are pretty extreme. So I think the imposition is far greater. Yeah, it, it does seem like, I mean, as opposed to being forced to eat vegan food. Which yes, which really I think is tough. a wonderful thing, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, taking I, a step back for a second, what would you say is the role of violence in seeking social change? So our view is that we are opposed to violence. We're not down-the-line pacifists because we uh, think that violence and self-defense is permissible and sometimes violence in defense of others is permissible, but that violence is often highly problematic in a justice movement. It can alienate the general public, uh, it may be counterproductive, it may be inconsistent with other things that one is doing. Uh, but we do tackle this issue in the book because there are uh, significant numbers of people who are violent on the uh, pro-life side, and there is a some violent wing of the animal rights movement. Uh, we do distinguish between violence on the one hand and mere law-breaking that amounts to civil disobedience on the other hand. That, we think, is perfectly fine. Right. Um, I've represented people in other contexts in court who, you know, broke the law as a form of protest and were willing to go to jail or to, you know, to make a statement. So that's not what we're talking about. But we do think that there are real problems with violence as a matter of what it's going to accomplish and then we try to see whether that works in principle. I think Sherry has a fuller answer. Well, one of, the, one of the things that we talk about in the book is how violence is something that should only be undertaken when absolutely necessary. Even, you know, and, and of course in self-defense this is true, if, if in general, other than stand your ground laws, but in general you cannot just kill somebody because it's one option for defending yourself. If there's a peaceful option, you take that one. Mm -hmm. And here, in a way, we have this luxury because so much violence is committed against animals. We have the luxury of saving animals without hurting anybody. Um, we can we can go in. You can go into a stockyard, and there will be a dead pile. If you want to rescue an animal, you don't have to go in and break into anything. So, um, so our view is that if that it can't be necessary to commit violence until there are no ways to save anyone without it, and we have, and we're not in that position right now. You mentioned something there. I'm interested in your perspective. When you use the term violence, are you talking about violence against property as well as violence against people? It's a great question. It, it, certainly violence against people counts as violence, but sometimes, but breaking in can yield violence. You know, when you break Absolutely. into, and burglaries often will end up, somebody gets shot. Somebody takes out a gun because they think that you have a gun, and, and then somebody gets killed. So, so you're creating that danger. Yeah, exactly. So, And yeah. I just want to mention also at this point, that the animal rights movement is, as you pointed out, like very nonviolent, yes, <laughs> largely. It's it just, is. it's either very, very fringe people who, uh, who are really not in any kind of leadership role, or sometimes allegations that really aren't true. And it runs Correct. the gamut of the political spectrum, which I think is something totally. that is, you know, unique to the animal rights movement. But you also mentioned something that I think is important to explore, that what we're fighting is incalculable violence. Yes. I mean, the violence against animals is so enormous. How do you feel about using that violence or presenting that violence to people? Is that a good tactic? Do we have to get people to see what's happening to animals in order to change their minds? It's a great question about whether you show footage, whether you yeah. uh, go into graphic descriptions. Mm -hmm. Again, and, and this is something that overlaps also with the pro-life movement, uh, you know, which will show Absolutely. pictures of mangled fetuses. Yes. So that, that question, like most of these questions, has both a principal dimension and a practical dimension. I think the practical dimension is in some sense uh, harder here 
because you really don't know what the consequences are going to be. I'm sure you know about pay-per-view and these other uh, attempts to get people to watch. Paying people a a few dollars to watch a a horrible video of what's actually happening to animals. Right, and and they do some follow-up, and, you know, there is some evidence that it it has a positive impact in terms of getting people to change their eating habits, at least for some period of time. So I don't want to rule that that out. Uh, You need to know what the consequences are. On the principal side, I think in principle there's nothing wrong with it, right? Showing people the actual if consequences of what they're doing, right? Yeah. Now, there are versions of this that are horribly coercive, like some of these state laws with regard to fetal ultrasounds where a, a doctor is supposed to show a woman considering having an abortion an image of her, her fetus while he's inserting a probe inside of her mm-hmm. to create it. So that's, you know, obviously we don't advocate anything like that with respect to animal rights. Mm. I want to actually take a step back uh, again, because I, I want to make sure to talk about your book, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger. So why did you decide to write this book, and how do you answer that question? So I decided to write the book because when I first became a vegan, people started to ask me those questions, a lot of them, and I didn't know. You know, I felt like I, I became vegan, but I don't. I haven't become an expert on answering questions. And ah, so I, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, I, but I started looking around because I thought maybe there was a book that answered the questions. And typically, I'd find a sort of frequently asked questions page, and they would say, you know, what about plants? And there'd be two lines: plants don't feel anything. And so I decided this would be really a good book to exist. So I'm going to write it since it doesn't exist yet. And um, and so I, I I basically took in the questions, and I really sort of lived with those questions and tried to take them as seriously as one could and then answer them to the best of my ability. So how do you answer a question if you're sitting down to dinner with somebody and they say, mind if I order the cheeseburger? It varies. It's, it's a great question. People have stopped asking me the question. Well, I would think. <laughs> just, just hand them your yeah, book. Right, right, right. right. Um, uh, but I do, I do say, do you, do you really want to know? Do you want an answer to that question? And then often they'll say, no, no I don't. So I think to the extent that they're asking it, to be polite, like, do you mind if I use my phone for a second? Then I'm, I don't, I don't want to affirm that and say not at all. I don't mind because that's not true to how I feel. But I also don't want to engage them in a conversation that they're not welcoming at all. So I say, do you want to, do you want to talk about this? Do you want me to tell you? And, and then they'll say, no, no, I think I have my answer. Um, But what if somebody who's watching this might be the person who doesn't know how to act when they're having dinner with you or with us? So how would they handle that situation? Go vegan, obviously. Right, that's one (laughs) option. They can go vegan and they can order vegan. I think what a lot of people do is they order something that they view as less objectionable. I think that people have decided on a hierarchy, so they'll order the fish or they'll order dairy or egg or something or they won't order the pork chop, they'll get chicken. Yeah, they're trying to be accommodating they yeah. see it as a, as a compromise. Mm-hmm. But that at once they do that, they're no longer consulting with me on whether they've made the correct uh, choice. So I think, I think the most important thing is to be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you feel incredibly uncomfortable, then say so. And you can say, you know, what are you really, if you're really asking me, am I going to leave? If you order something, no, I'm not going to leave. I'll stay with you. But if you're asking whether it bothers me, of course it does. Mm-hmm. Of course yeah. it does. I think it's so interesting. If I could, like, the, both the things you said, you about the abortion and you about 
or, or about the videos, showing people videos, and you about this has a lot to do with making sure that you have permission from somebody to impose this on them. Yeah. And if, they, if they're really asking, they really want to know. And I think that's a really important thing to remember for activism, making sure you have people's permission. But you were just about to say well, something. So I think when people ask, mind if I order the cheeseburger, what they're often really asking is, is this just a personal idiosyncratic thing that you do? Or is this a real ethical commitment so that you actually think it's wrong when other people do this too? And of course, they know the answer to that question, right? I mean, unless someone says, oh, I'm a dietary, uh, plant-based type right. or something like that, they know that it's the latter. But asking that question kind of lets them pretend that it's the former. Yeah, and kind of it's a way of asking permission. Yeah. It puts, puts one yes. in an awkward position because I don't want to be the food police. Well, I do, but, you know, I'm not allowed <laughs> to be. I'm not, I don't think it's a good idea to be the food police. But at the same time, I can't give people permission yes. to do something to an animal. I mean, it's not my... I don't have that right. People do, I think, look to the vegan as some kind of a priest. Like when, when they find out you're vegan, they'll say, well, I ate a lot less, but last week I had a, tur <laughs> I had a lot of turkey, you know, but this week I'm trying not to. And you're kind of like, why are you telling me this? Um, but I, I think they do sort of like, okay, so you're holy and pure. You know, like there's something so difficult about being vegan and, and then, you know, they kind of yeah. consult you in that and way. They don't well, know it's so easy. Let's, yeah. So yeah. speaking of it being so easy, let's talk about your kids because they're great advocates for animals. You have two daughters, Mina and Amelia. Yes, and I'm proud of them. Yeah, yeah, I'm proud of them. They're not even my kids. <laughs> now are they, so they're both vegan? Yes, they're both vegan. They're both vegan. Um, so Mina is 13. Amelia would want me to say that she will turn 11 in April okay. rather than describe her as 10. Happy birthday, <laughs> Amelia, early. Yeah. Happy birthday. So we they turned vegan pretty much when we did, which yeah. was, when was that? That was when, when that was almost nine years ago, when Mina was uh, six? Four. Four, yes. Four years old. My math is off. Um, and Amelia was two. And that we all became vegan. And, you know, at first that didn't mean anything to them. And one of the greatest things was be able to be able to take them to an animal sanctuary and introduce them to the animals they're no longer exploiting. And that was a very special thing. And they really connected to that. And they're both really great advocates. Each of them has... Uh, not through proselytizing, but just by her own example, converted a number of their friends to veganism. Yeah, well, and, and do you find that they have challenges growing up vegan in a non-vegan world? Does it make it easier to have Sherry and Michael as their parents? <laughs> um, I know we yeah. hope so. Questions. You know, I think they handle the challenges better than we do. Yes, they do. Uh, they, they will sit at tables and be very comfortable, and people ask them questions. They answer the questions. Someone said to Mina, um, you know, you really need meat for protein. And I was thinking about all the things one might say, and she said, no, you don't. <laughs> I have to remember that one. Yeah, thanks. You should put that in the book. Yeah, yeah, they have a confidence about it that yeah. comes of having always been this way. Yeah, and knowing that it, it works just fine. I'm yeah. seeing a sequel, actually, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger Guide for Teenagers <laughs> by Mina and Amelia. I think it could happen. Well, it is, I think, you know, there's a, a growing number of young people, mostly girls, I think, who go vegan without any support from their families, and I think that's a really hard thing to do. Sometimes their parents will try to, you know, accommodate them, but other times they encounter hostility. So that, that must be a much harder thing to do. It's an amazing thing, yeah. and, and sometimes they bring their families along eventually. But you see how close, when you're a child, that you're close to that empathy without having yet taken in as much of the brainwashing. 
Yeah. Yeah, and once I I hope uh, that once you're you're there, you're not influenced by the world when you reach those tough teenage years. But if I have confidence in any kids, it's in Nina and Amelia. Yeah, absolutely. And if I have confidence in anybody's ability to change the world for animals, it's you too. So thank you so much for all the work that you do. We're just we're such huge, gigantic fans of of all that you do. And and thank you I for joining us. We could talk to you all day. We could. We could. But we're not allowed to. We we're, yeah. we love to pick your brains. So thanks for bringing your brains with you from Ithaca. Thanks, it was remarkably painless. <laughs> yeah, well, it's because you eat kale. Welcome to our hen house, Michael and Sherry. Thank you, it's great to be here. Yeah, terrific. It's so lovely to have you, as always, and we're always thrilled to be talking to you two, uh, two of the brightest minds that I know, and especially thrilled to be talking to you because you have just put out your latest book, Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights. And uh, you didn't think that either abortion or animal rights was sufficiently controversial for a book, so you decided to write about both of them together. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's actually our first book together. Uh, So each of us has published quite a bit on our own, uh, but we decided to test our relationship by writing a book together. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's why we tackled an easy subject. And yes. we want to start start small. Yeah, with things that couldn't cause any arguments. Good. Exactly. And you are still married, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Uh, so far, we've survived. So yeah. just to start off with, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if we were going to boil down your position on abortion to very common parlance, you would more or less describe yourselves as pro-choice? Yes, that right? we are pro-choice. Pro-choice, but we, uh, we wring our hands a lot. Right, there are many nuances there, which we'll get into. And if you were to boil your position on animals down in the same way, you might use the term ethical vegans. Is that a yes. term you would, you would label yourselves with? We would. Yes. So that's where we're starting from. And to a lot of people, of course, those things may seem very contradictory. And since your book certainly sets out to explain why they are not contradictory... Can you tell us how you would express the central unifying theme between these two issues? I think that what unifies the issues is that we're talking in both cases about a being whose existence is threatened by a practice that's a common practice and that many view as a legitimate practice. So for people within the pro-life movement, the being in question is an embryo or a fetus, and the personhood of that entity is questioned. People claim a right to terminate the life of that being without necessarily having a life and death struggle confronting one. There's vulnerability there. People do it for um, claim sort of um, libertarian right to, to do it. And I think people do the same sorts of things when it comes to animals, that people claim a right to be able to kill animals um, in order to use them, even when there isn't a life or death situation threatening, animals are vulnerable, and their value as moral persons is also contested. So in both camps, you have people fighting for the rights of what they view as a vulnerable being under attack by people who claim a liberty to terminate the lives of those beings. I would, for me, I think that what I would say the central Uh, message of the first 60% of the book is that sentience, the ability to have sensations, feelings, etc., is the foundation for moral concern. And that 
position, of course, is widely accepted among ethical vegans. It's not a view that uh, you see discussed much in the debate about abortion. Um, on, the, on the other hand, it's actually when it comes to abortion, you do see laws that seem to acknowledge that sentience is important. So you have, for example, pain-capable abortion legislation that bans abortion at a point in pregnancy when at least the drafters of the legislation believe that a fetus can now experience pain and is now sentient. So even though we view sentience as a as the beginning of moral concern when it comes to animals, and that's sort of an animal rights position that's very common, you do see hints of that in the context of abortion discussions as well. So it is true that sentience is a word that animal rights advocates use all the time and do embrace as as the touchstone for their uh, feelings about what should happen to animals. But can you just explain briefly why sentience is your touchstone for what matters when it comes to both these issues? Well, we think that sentience at the point at which an an entity or a being can have experiences, whether they're good or bad experiences, is really the point at which there's somebody there. And then once there's somebody there, we think that that somebody has interests and and interests can be protected by rights. So that can be an interest in not suffering and not in, in an interest in pursuing joy and also an interest in continuing to exist. And that until that point, you don't really have someone there. It's more of something. One of the one of the interesting things we discovered writing the book and sharing earlier versions with uh, people who are not themselves vegan but were curious or interested was uh, the pushback we got against sentience as a criterion. And I expected the pushback to be that, well, sentience is too weak a criterion for moral consideration. That is, you need something stronger like uh, human-like capacities so that I I expected people to say, well, only humans have rights. And you get a little of that. But one of the things I I found surprisingly was that people thought, well, no, sentience isn't necessary for uh, moral consideration. Uh, Think about plants which are alive, after all. Why isn't being alive sufficient? Or even inanimate objects, well, the Mona Lisa doesn't isn't that something that's valuable, even though it's not sentient. And uh, I guess our view about this is that it's valuable to people, but it doesn't have value in itself. Although, of course, nothing in our view about um, the wrongfulness of uh, exploiting animals uh, turns on the Mona Lisa not having rights. We just have to think she doesn't. Right, right. Right. Well, I think to some degree, I think to some degree, our view turns a little bit on the Mona Lisa not having rights, because to the extent that rights extend well beyond the sentient, they cease to mean very much. Yeah, that's right. The Mona Lisa certainly doesn't have any rights that I think would uh, um, uh, cast doubt uh, or make uh, competing claims against actual right holders. And of course, the question, what about plants, is threatening to the vegan position precisely because, you know, the the excess, excessive strictness and, extra, and excessive leniency on what counts as a basis for rights can both sort of lead to the same end point, which is no rights for animals. Right. It just becomes that the world is such a nightmare that there's just nothing we can do about it, that 
if, if plants are sentient uh, as well. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, of course, people, most people in the animal protection, animal rights movement think of sentience all the time. But, you know, it is, it is a, associated a lot with the work of Peter Singer. And I'm wondering, I, I know that your point of view varies from a standard utilitarian point of view. And can you just go into that a little bit? What are the differences between you and Singer? Sure. So uh, Singer's view is, as the view of most utilitarians, that what matters are people's pleasures minus pains, or in the more sophisticated version, their utility, their enjoyment of life. And so if one is a strict utilitarian, then I think that uh, leads to a view that animals and humans shouldn't be made to suffer unnecessarily but that there's nothing inherently wrong with exploiting and expropriating their bodies. Uh, and we think there is. Um, and we think that's true for humans as well as non-human animals, of course. Uh, so uh, I think it's hard to get to a position of rights from utilitarianism. After all, the most famous of all utilitarians, Jeremy Bentham, called rights nonsense on stilts. Uh, so we, we have a, the sort of standard rights-based uh, objections to utilitarianism, uh, but we also think that it leads to some pretty uh, horrific uh, positions with respect to animals in particular. And one of the things that we differ with Peter Singer on is that his view is that sentience is very important and sentience grounds a, a sort of a right or something like a right not to be subjected to harm. So he sort of, he expands, um, as Bentham did, expands the interest uh, against suffering and, um, you know, in, in favor of, of utiles counting from humans to animals as well. On the other hand, he doesn't see there as being a right to life in most animals. And he, I think he, he, he creates an exception for humans and other animals with human-like intelligence, including maybe the great apes and perhaps some of the cetaceans. But um, we take a view that it doesn't, that having a sort of higher intelligence or a kind of ability to think about the future in a particular way is not necessary at all to having an interest and a right to continue existing. And so that's an important distinction between our view and that of Peter Singer. We, we hope we to, to persuade him because we're, we're doing a, a panel he's invited us to in the fall uh, at Princeton uh, on our book. And, uh, you know, we'll see if we can uh, change him from a life uh, time you took to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> something else. Yes. <laughs> that should be interesting. That has always been, I think, for almost everyone in this movement, uh, you know, many of whom have have had their lives changed by the work of Peter Singer. But that 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 thing about death not being a harm, uh, just because you have this life plan, I, I I don't know. It's just hard to wrap my head around that one. I've never uh, I, I've never really been able to grasp that. Well, one of the things we, what we say in the chapter on this is that you know the the notion that death is not a harm is traceable uh, to various ancient uh, philosophers, including especially uh, Epicurus. But when Epicurus made this argument, he was talking about people. Uh, yeah, and he wasn't, he certainly wasn't arguing that it was okay to kill people because death isn't a harm. 
So his his argument was really more that people shouldn't worry about death because so long as they're alive, they're not death is not with them. And then the moment that they die, they are not in existence, so they have nothing more to worry about. And that, you know, there, there's actual strength to that argument, I think, but it's an argument that goes across the species. And also, importantly, it's not an argument for taking away someone's life. It's just an argument about being sort of more um, calm and reflective about death and rather than being frightened of it. Yeah, it does seem like the difference between having a life plan and the ability to plan for the future is not the thing that makes, if, if something makes death a harm, it doesn't seem like that is, is, is it. And, but it does give you a dividing line between animals and humans who do do that and animals who don't. But I'm not sure that dividing line is, it's hard for me to grasp. Yeah, I mean, one thing that you could say for it, I suppose, is that to the extent that if you lived in the eternal present, which is sort of how a lot of people imagine non-human animals live, then you could say, well, so each moment you actually have a different being and therefore being at moment one has no interests in the life of the being at moment two. But I don't really think that that's an accurate description of of anybody and particularly of animals. Um, Any of us who's had a companion animal knows that animals anticipate the future. They get very excited when it's around time for mommy and daddy to get home. They get excited if there's some kind of treat coming. So uh, they, they hide stuff. So I think that while they might not have a whole life plan, they certainly are not living in the eternal present in a way that would separate them um, as, a, as a being from moment one to moment two, such that taking the life of being two would do no harm to being one. And we talk about some of these puzzles in the chapter on Epicureanism. And one of the things I point out is that this, this question of whether, you know, uh, you are the same being today as you will be tomorrow has been a puzzle for humans as well. Uh, and some of the greatest thinkers of uh, human history have thought, no, you're not the same person. That's just an illusion. So that view is associated uh, with uh, Buddha. Uh, it's associated with David Hume. Heraclitus. Heraclitus. Uh, and so these are, you know, these are deep puzzles. And the the upshot of our, of our analysis is they are puzzles, but they're no more or less puzzling for humans than for non-human animals. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, since since I have totally, not surprisingly, gotten us off on all discussion of animal issues, mm-hmm. we'll come back to the other <laughs> issue in your book. So, sentience is is your is your basic line. When does sentience start for a fetus? We don't know exactly when it starts, but doctors sort of seem to place it somewhere during the late second trimester. So somewhere in the 20s or 30s weeks of gestation. Um, I think, I think, I think I mean, earlier than the 30s. Maybe 28, well, somewhere can, between 28 weeks, 32 weeks, well, so I, so perhaps the, earlier. If you talk to the pro-life doctors, they'll tell you, you know, as, as with anything um, having to do with abortion, the facts about this are subject, subject to contestation. Well, so, this is a hard fact to pin down, too. You can't exactly ask a fetus, does this hurt? Right, right. right. Well, you, so the pain-capable abortion laws, I think, sometimes place sentience at 20 weeks. I think that's a very early estimate that, that would it would be hard to find a lot of 
medical people who would agree with that line. Um, but somewhere between 20 and 30 weeks, I think, is probably a safe bet. And how does that relate to the concept, the concept of viability, viability. And, and to the current state of the law? Well, viability is where the law places the point at which women no longer have a right to an abortion. So in Roe versus Wade, the one part of Roe versus Wade that has continued to be the law, even despite cases that have cut back on its holding in many ways, is that prior to viability, a woman has a right to an abortion. And currently that means that the government cannot place undue burdens in her path to having an abortion, whether purposefully or in effect. And so the connection, I think, one potential connection between viability and sentience is that the timing might be sort of similar, and which is, I think, an accident and can change with changing technology. But at the moment, usually if, uh, if a fetus is at around 28 weeks or so, that's a point at which it's viable. And in fact, there are arguments that it's already viable at 23 weeks. There are some fetuses that have been rescued with extreme measures there. So, uh, so there might be some connection between those points, which would be sort of an interesting happenstance because it would align our view of when moral questions really start to come up in a serious way for abortion with the point at which um, the law no longer protects a woman's right to terminate. If I can just add, it's for listeners who are not uh, aficionados of constitutional doctrine, uh, viability literally means that the fetus is capable of survival outside of the womb. And so, as Sherry says, that's not necessarily the same thing as sentient. One could imagine uh, that a fetus would not be sentient, but could survive outside of the womb if the fetus's sort of autonomic nervous system and lungs and so forth were sufficiently developed. And conversely, one could imagine that a fetus could be sentient, but not yet viable. So sort of in there, inside the womb, thinking, thoughts, feeling pain, etc., uh, but not yet able to survive outside of it. Uh, and so when the court made the move in Roe to say viability is the dividing line, the justices weren't uh, thinking about, at least not expressly thinking about or consciously thinking about, uh, is this the point at which the fetus has moral rights? They were thinking about, is this the point at which we can separate the interests of a pregnant woman and her fetus? Right. And we don't think that the point of viability really has anything morally to say about the status of the fetus, because the fact that it can breathe with or uh, with help or, or needs to be continues to need to be in the womb in order to breathe doesn't seem to sort of mark a, a morally relevant line. But the morally relevant line for you really is if the fetus is not sentient yet, there's not really a moral issue. And is that is that right? And if it if it is, what percentage of current abortions in this country are do involve a moral issue? Do involve possibly sentient fetuses? So we think we think that's about right. I mean, we we leave open the possibility that there might be something wrong even with abortion that's earlier, but it doesn't concern violating the moral rights or interests of the fetus itself. So, for example, um, a, a sex selection abortion early in pregnancy would, might be immoral on uh, grounds of discrimination, but, and, but but the victim of that discrimination is not the fetus itself because it is not yet sentient or capable of being. 
uh, a victim at that point. Um, so, but, and in answer to your other question, uh, the overwhelming majority of abortions happen long before sentience, happen in the, in the early part of pregnancy. And we would venture to say perhaps even more abortions would happen earlier if there weren't obstacles in the paths of women who are seeking to have an abortion. So in fact, they end up having them perhaps later than they had hoped to. Now, what's uh, so your position on pre-sentience abortions is very, very different from your position. Well, not not a different outcome, but a different rationale from your position on post-sentience abortions. Can you talk about when, if ever, it's it's moral to do a post-sentience abortion? We don't really talk much about when it would be moral to do a post-sentience abortion. We do, we do discuss the life of the mother, and we talk about how where the mother's life is threatened, then we certainly um, think that that is sort of the, the, mo- the most threatening case as far as the pro-life movement is concerned. But, but we even allow that some people within the pro-life movement might say, well, look, you have two equally entitled living beings at that point. And so who's to say which one should live and which one should die? And we recognize that as a position, even though we don't share it. So I think what, that we would say that, that post-sentience, although we think abortion should remain protected by law because of the woman's bodily integrity interests, we think that, um, that something serious should be the reason for it as far as morality goes. So that we would, we would think if somebody is, is just having an abortion after sentience because they've been sort of thinking about it for a long time and that they hadn't really gotten around to it and they don't, you know, and they don't really have strong feelings about it, but, you know, they, they don't want to have a baby, that, that that would not be a moral choice, even though we wouldn't want to proscribe it legally. Whereas if somebody is, in, you know, suffering because of this pregnancy, either a medical or a psychological condition, or, you know, cannot, you know, is not in a position to take care of the baby and would have to go through the pain of separating from that baby if, if she actually gave birth to it, um, that these are reasons which we can better understand um, from a moral perspective. So, of course, there's a big difference between thinking something should be legal and thinking something is moral. And as you pointed out, you don't think you are pro-choice and you think there should not be legal prescriptions against uh, these these post-sentence abortions, regardless of the morality. And I think you draw a really fascinating analogy here in explaining this between uh, pregnant women and farmed animals. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. The uh, what we say is that pregnant often the analogy that comes to mind when we think about animal rights and abortion is between the fetus and the animal because they're both the vulnerable creatures who are subject to being killed or exploited. But I think that we we I mean, we talk about this in the book that we think that both the female animal who is being forcibly impregnated and then forced to have a baby and and have the baby taken away so that the female can be milked and, uh, and then impregnated again, that this process is remarkably similar in, in its structure to what happens to women who are forcibly made to take pregnancies to term that they would wish to terminate. So, it's more extreme, of course, in the case of animals. Most women uh, are not 
do not have their babies taken away from them and they're not then slaughtered after they have their babies, nor are their babies slaughtered, of course, and they're not used for food. But at the same time, if they don't want to be pregnant, then their bodies really are being instrumentalized by the government if the law requires them to take the pregnancy to term in order to produce this baby or for the sake of the fetus or for whatever variety of objectives are in play. And the woman's own agency over her own internal, her own most private places in her body becomes taken over by this objective outside of her and this third party objective that 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 turns her into a vehicle for somebody else's purposes much in the way that animals are utilized and turned into vehicles for our own culinary pleasure so if i can sort of uh, add a thought on that you know one of the things i've noticed uh, since i became a vegan i guess about 9 10 years ago is that um that this is a movement in which I'd say a majority of the participants are uh, women, um, although there are lots of prominent men in the movement as well. Uh, and, you know, there are all sorts of explanations for that. But one way of th thinking about what we say when we compare the uh, reproductive servitude of human women and uh, basically uh uh, hens and dairy, cows, sheep, goats, uh, is, um, you know, one of the, one of the goals there, I think, is to reach, uh, vegetarian women, uh, right. Who, uh, have become or remained vegetarian on grounds of sort of an ethic of care and sympathy for other beings. And we're just sort of reminding people of what, it means to eat these seemingly benign uh, animal products, uh, dairy and eggs, that uh, in addition to the uh, terrible conditions under which the animals are typically uh, kept and the fate of the, the males, uh, there is this connection to the sort of reproductive servitude of human women. So this, this goes a lot to explain why people who care about animals and who are vegan um, should think very seriously about abortion um, and, and come out in, 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 you can come out in various ways, but, but it explains why it's, it, it, these, there are so many parallels between these issues. But why don't people who oppose abortion seem to worry about animals uh, not certainly that's not true of everybody, but many people who oppose abortion very vehemently do not seem to be at all concerned about animals. Clearly, their opposition is coming from a different rationale. I think that's right, Marianne. I think that people who are very, very much opposed to abortion but have no concern about animal rights, at least for the moment until they read our book, <laughs> um, um, are coming from the view that humanity is the basis for, um, for the vesting of moral rights. And therefore, sentience doesn't matter. And in fact, what the stage of pregnancy is not important because the moment that a human organism exists, even in its one-celled form, you have a person with rights, including the right not to, not to be killed. Um, and so... 
if one's view is that what really decides the interests and rights of a being is the human DNA of that organism, then that will essentially cut off animals if that's the sole criterion because non-humans have DNA that's similar in a lot of ways. And so one could make arguments evolutionarily for connecting the rights of the two categories of beings. But I think that's where they're coming from, that that some of the people who are pro-life come from an ethic of care that I think makes them potentially open to the idea of animal rights. But some come from the position that there is a holy and sacred life that has started at the point of fertilization, and that's human. And that is really the beginning and the end of the question for them. Well, it seems like they they would not be very fertile ground for arguments regarding animals. But as you say, and as you alluded to before, there seem to be many people in the anti-abortion or pro-life movement who are focusing on on issues regarding sentience. You were talking about, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the term was, but abortions. Pain-capable abortions. Yeah. So do you think that there is fertile ground there for people in in the pro-life movement to hear these arguments, similar arguments about animals? I hope so. Uh, One of the things that we try very hard to do in this book and whenever either of us writes about abortion is to take that very seriously the moral arguments against abortion. And we've had, you know, we've had some success, not necessarily in persuading people who are pro-life to our point of view, but in uh, getting them to sort of appreciate that we engage, engage respectfully with that point of view. And so we hope that at some point that will be uh, reciprocated. I think with, with respect to the uh, pain-capable abortion laws, uh, what's going on there is that the vast sort of middle of the public had somewhat um, amorphous, ill-defined views about abortion. And they think something like, well, abortion is not such a big deal early, but, you know, the later you get in pregnancy, the worse it is. And so if the fetus can feel pain, yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, And I think that what you might think of as the core of the pro-life movement, the organizers, uh, people who are most active, who might take a view that says all abortions are wrong from the moment of conception, nonetheless are interested in appealing to people who take uh, more of a middle view. It's a little like what you see with the the laws banning so-called partial birth abortion. From the perspective of someone who thinks all abortion is murder, it shouldn't matter that the abortion takes place uh, uh, when the fetus is completely out, partially out, or completely inside the womb. But they're appealing to people who have uh, less committed views. And we think the fact that the pain capability is something that resonates with the general public suggests that perhaps the general public is more receptive to animal rights arguments. And we also see a sort of parallel between this and advocacy within the animal rights movement as well, that sometimes, you know, animal ethical vegans will advocate for animals and take the view that all animals who are sentient are entitled to be free of violence and exploitation. But sometimes in advocating might point to particularly 
graphic or dramatic illustrations of the violence against animals because we imagine that maybe people in the mainstream will be more affected by that than by some other things that might strike us as equally unjust. Yeah, you actually spend uh, quite a bit of, of space in your book discussing the tactics of using horrific imagery, which certainly isn't hard to come by. There's a lot of horrific things happening to, to animals out there. But how do you feel about the efficacy of that type of campaigning? I think that it can be useful. Um, as from a moral point of view, we argue that if somebody is doing something violent, that person is not really entitled as a moral matter to shield themselves from the from the view of what they're doing. That what we've done essentially is to sort of delegate violent work to others. And so the people at the slaughterhouse do the violent work and then people can go to the store and eat something and it feels just like they're eating something vegan from the point of view of violence since they don't see what happens. So we don't think that there's a real entitlement to be free of those images. But at the same time, people can be, first of all, can just become numb to the images if they see too much of it. So I think a sort of reaction that people have if they see a lot of very violent imagery about animals is to stop really seeing anything anymore, you know, to stop having a reaction to it at all. And certainly we don't want that, right? I mean, there's, you know, there are places where animals are slaughtered in the streets and people just walk by and don't have any reaction to it. So people become numb to all sorts of things. And I would, I would, I would think as a strategic matter, it's very important not to saturate people with imagery that's going to have that effect. But on occasion, I think it's useful to show people a little bit of what they're contributing to when they consume animal products. Uh, I also want to add that our main point about this is less about efficacy. I know there's a a burgeoning movement about effective advocacy, effective philanthropy, and uh, that all strikes me as worthwhile and worth studying. Um, that's, and I, I actually do some work in wearing one of my other hats on trying to figure out what is effective advocacy with respect to uh, getting kids not to smoke cigarettes. Uh, and it turns out to be incredibly difficult to figure these things out. Uh, there's a gigantic uh, sort of set of uh, gigantic literature uh, of various experiments that are done. And we're sort of in the infancy of figuring out what's most effective uh, as advocates. Uh, so our, our main goal in the chapter on graphic images is to, to ask, uh, what makes sense to do, assuming you think it's going to work? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not. I think you're exactly right that none of us is in a position to really answer all of those questions, but it's very important to be raising them, and and we're just all trying to do our best in figuring yes. out what is effective, and it's a very difficult question. You talk a bit about the use of violence in in these movements as well. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yes. Well, we both are categorically opposed to the use of violence. And when we say violence, we, you know, we mean threats and harm to people and animals and, and property. So, so we think that breaking into somebody's home would be violence, even though, it, you know, it might not be classified as a violent crime under the Bureau of Justice Statistics, a burglary or whatever. So, um, 
somebody, um, we, what we say about violence is that we think that it's counterproductive um, or we believe it to be counterproductive and that the fact that it turns many people off is actually relevant to its morality because violence has to be a sort of last resort and last resort means that it's necessary. And in order for it to be necessary, it really has to be effective. So to the extent that we have alternatives, ways we can save animals without inflicting any violence on anyone, then we have an obligation to turn to those first. And unfortunately, we have this sort of luxury, what you could call it in quotes, of having so many animals in trouble in so many places and way and and ways of intervening on their behalf that are perfectly legal and don't require any kind of law breaking or any kind of violence that we can select to save animals under conditions where we don't have to hurt anybody in order to do it. Um, unlike the situation where if you wanted to save a human being most of the time, if you come across somebody in jeopardy and the only way to save them is to use violence, you're not going to be able to just, well, I can just walk down the street and there'll be some other person that I can save just as easily. Yeah, and fortunately, I mean, I, I actually feel that there is not much, if any, violence in our movement. And I think that's contrary to the, to the anti-abortion movement. Uh, I'm not saying that, that will always be the case. People are... Uh, we have many, many different people of many different persuasions, but but so far, I think that most people, the vast, vast majority of people definitely agree with that. It, it's you, also true that, right, I mean, what I think what you said just now is completely true, and it's borne out by the statistics, and yet uh, one of the stereotypes of the animal rights movement is that it is a sort of terrorist-infused movement, uh, and, you know, there was a famous statement uh, a number of years ago by a government official describing the uh, uh, animal rights and environmental terrorism as a sort of number one domestic terrorism threat, which was just absurd. Uh, but I think part of the reason why that view has as much currency as it does is that it's a way of discrediting the animal rights message to associate it with people who are sort of fringe loonies, right? So uh, it's much easier to dismiss somebody who is resorting to violence than it is, you know, your friend or neighbor or relative who's inviting you over to their house to enjoy a good vegan meal. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it... it, it it's it's a smear campaign uh, from the industry and sadly from the government and and uh, a sometimes successful one with people want, who want to hear that that uh, that message and oh absolutely and to the extent there has been violence occasionally or proposals for violence frequently it's become come from agents provocateurs from the industry who have infiltrated uh, I think there was a recent case of that with um, somebody from SeaWorld uh, trying to provoke violence, uh, trying to get PETA to provoke, uh, commit acts of violence against SeaWorld. So, That's we, so we see that from time to time. And, and I think you're totally right as to the reason why, because it discredits the movement. Uh, speaking of agreeing, do you guys agree on everything? Um, I think, no. I don't think we agree on everything. <laughs> no, no. Do you agree on that? <laughs> yeah, I guess we would agree that we don't agree on everything. It's pretty well, right, you're, I mean, you're, you're getting us after we've talked about this quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> well, you come to agreements then. That's good. 
Yeah, we do. All right, the next so, interview we do of you, it's going to be all, all things that you completely disagree about. Um, that'll be the next book. <laughs> so why did you decide to write this book? Why, why did you want to put these two subjects together? Well, at the time when I wrote my chapter on what about abortion on, or you must be pro-life on, uh, in my book, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger, um, people had asked me this question and it struck me as a fascinating juxtaposition. And I really, I mean, I had something of an answer and I think I did give what I thought was uh, an elegant answer in my book, but I wa- and I wanted to think about it more. And Michael had had also heard people talking along these lines about abortion and animal rights. And, you know, well, if you care about fetus, if you care about animals, why don't you care about humans and human fetuses and so on? And we decided that it was really worth thinking about in depth and trying and really trying to grapple with it and take seriously what we viewed as some of the parallels between the claims of the two movements and, and, and also for our own thinking, try to tease out, well, what do we really think about this? And, you know, maybe we'll change our minds in the process. And uh, I'm, I'm very glad that you did write it because it is actually an issue that comes up a lot, that people bring up a lot. And it's a very nuanced discussion and you have, you have really uh, laid it out in, in a masterful fashion and brought up all sorts of issues that I had not really considered before. The book is Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights. And thanks so much for joining us today on our hen house. Thank you, Marion. It was yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for giving us the forum. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Sherry. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I guess I should say welcome back. You have been here before, but we're doing something kind of different today because I found out that the course you teach at Cornell, where I will be teaching, I'm very happy to be teaching there next semester, but the course you teach is a little different than the approach most people take who teach about animals at a, at a law school. I mean, it's not well, we'll we'll talk about it. I, I won't define it before we start. So maybe I'll just leave that up to you. Can you just kind of briefly tell us what your goal is in teaching the course and how you have designed it to suit that goal? Yes. My goal is to open people's minds to the idea that what we've been doing with animals our whole lives and what they've been doing, what their parents were doing, that could be wrong. And I think that that's, not always an easy lesson to learn, but really, to- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But people come to it from different backgrounds. So sometimes people already are vegan and believe in animal rights, and they just want to hear more about it. But a lot of people are just like, "Well, I really love my dog, so I saw animal rights. I thought it'd be fun to take a course." And so it sort of challenges them to rethink our relationship with animals and the ways in which we sort of classify animals as falling completely outside of the moral community. And I do it in different ways. We we start off the course with a movie that's called Peaceable Kingdom, The Journey Home. And the filmmakers are James Levesque and Jenny Stein, and they screen the film with us, and then they answer questions that the students might have. And the film follows a group of former farmers, and each of them used to work with animals and kill animals and so on. And then each came to a fork in the road and changed their lives. And some of them were involved in what we would call factory farming, and some 
were involved in organic whole foods-like variety. And part of the lesson is just that animal agriculture is itself a justice issue. It's not just factory farming. You know, one of the things that is so hard in trying to deliver this message, and I would say a lot of us would love to have the opportunity to talk to a bunch of interested people whose minds might be open, but they generally, like, well, how do you get them to sign up for this course? I mean, (laughs) that's always the problem, is getting them in the room to sit down and watch the movie. Yes. Well, for many years, I would just kind of do a little ad for the class in one of my other classes. So what I try to do in my little ad for it is to say that you learn how to question assumptions. And that is very much a part of being a good attorney, that you can look at something and everyone is assuming something and you come in and say, hey, there's this underlying premise and it might be wrong. And, you know, that's sort of what distinguishes a good lawyer from a great lawyer. If you're able to step in and see something that nobody else is seeing, that everybody else just agrees is fine. So, you know, I talk about that and it's, it's interesting. I have guests come from outside and we go, we sort of rotate between thinking about the moral issue and thinking about some of the facts that I think are behind the moral conclusion. So, We have an ethologist come in to talk about animal emotion. And I think learning that animals have complicated emotional systems is part of persuading ourselves that we have obligations to them because they're really very much like us in the relevant respects. So I actually find one of the most difficult things about teaching a much more standard animal law course is that students and everyone else are not well-educated on who animals are. I mean, you know, they have some instincts because it's kind of obvious who animals are. It's kind of obvious they have emotions. If people have dogs, they get that, but they don't process that in their heads. Well, you know, this is the big question. What's going on in their heads? But um, so I won't try to define it. And also their unbelievable knowledge gap which we can overlook as advocates because in our Facebook feeds, there's lots of information about all the horrible things that are happening to animals. And it's easy to forget that those things are not, like they re, every year I find that my students are still, still incredibly naive about what's going on. So do you agree? And, and how else do you deal with this fundamental knowledge gap without like just like forcing them to watch factory farm footage unendingly? Yes, I 100% agree with what you're saying, that that people have no idea. I remember one time I was in the audience of a job talk or, yeah, it was a presentation by an outside person. And so I raised my hand and I drew an analogy to animal, the area of animals. And I was saying how, I think we were talking about maybe domestic violence. And I was saying that domestic violence is often the worst And then when people are out on the street, we regulate it more. We have rules against sexual harassment or whatever. But that it's sort of the opposite with animals, that the animals in our home get treated best and the animals on the outside get subjected to the torture and so on. And so this one of my colleagues said to me, wait, so they don't kill them in a nice way? Yeah, yeah. And this is a professor, you know, so I think they don't know. And the way I try to expose them is in small doses so that I I can't 
sort of justify showing them earthlings because I personally was so traumatized by watching it myself. But, you know, they're little snippets. And I really think that learning what animals are capable of when they're treated well is more effective than showing them being treated like garbage. You know what I mean? That it's easier to watch, but it's also more inviting. Like seeing a happy calf is more inviting than seeing one begging for her life. Yeah. I mean, when the way animals are treated, like it's very hard to appreciate who they are when you're seeing them brutalized like that. They they might as well just be inanimate the way people are treating them. But at the same time, we have to like let people know what's really going on. It's, I, I mean, everybody listening to this actually probably struggles with the same issues. It's just in a classroom, it gets even more, the focus gets even more acute on the facts. But in part, when somebody signs up for a course like this, then I think that they're at least less resistant to facts. Because I once gave a lecture in like the ag school at Cornell and people were very resistant and they didn't want to hear about animals being hurt. And a lot of them are farmers and it really did not go well because they didn't sign up for that. So, I mean, there's something magical in a way about if you sign up for something, then there's the space to have the conversation. Yeah, no, that's really true. And I I consider that a great privilege of teaching this course, that you have some people who have like agreed to listen to you, even if what you're going to tell them is not what they want to hear. So who has an impact on these students? You, You teach a lot of different thinkers and philosophers. And what are the classes that really seem to turn people's heads around? Two of them that sort of seem really obvious, although I suspect that all of them have to some degree. We have Jonathan Balcombe, who's written a number of books about animal capacities and ethology. And they always enjoy that, like hearing about animal sex lives and you know, sort of things that animals do when they're free and joyous and you know what they're capable of doing, the games that they play. He talks about, I remember him talking about how there was this rooster and the rooster would sort of made it make a sound whenever finding an insect so that the female would come over. But if he was at a real distance, he would make that sound even though there was no insect because it was more plausible that the insect had left already by the time the female would come and then he would still try to mate with her. <laughs> and, and, sort of, and these kinds of like games. I think, I, I think these certain tendencies like cross species into uh... <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly. He said it was just predictable. The further away the female was, the more likely that he would lie, basically about his about his holdings. And I think people get a kick out of seeing seeing them almost like a mirror. You know, seeing that that we're all sort of playing the same kinds of games. And I think they also really enjoy hearing from Christopher Sebastian McJetters, who talks about intersectionality between being a prisoner and working at a slaughterhouse, and then the animals are getting tortured, and then the prisoners are getting traumatized, and they don't really have an option to say, I don't want to do this, because the 13th Amendment says prisoners can be forced to work, can be forcibly enslaved. So And he just exposes people to a lot of things they didn't know, like the tanneries in India. They destroy the skin and health of people who work there. And then, you know, and in addition, it's part of this 
slaughter industry. So he says that there's all of this real connection between the animals and the people who are oppressed and that they're that they need to be on the same team. Have you found that that's come to the forefront maybe the past four or five years that really, I mean, you can see the sea change in the perspectives of the students on on how important connect, interconnections between social justice issues are. Yes, absolutely. And I think also that more people of color are coming to veganism than in the past. It makes it a different conversation rather than having to say, oh, you know, it's not really a white movement. Now it really isn't. Like now it's harder to even suggest that it is. It's interesting that you mentioned these two speakers as having the most impact because you do have, I mean, you talk about a lot of the philosophical roots of animal rights and and. Someone said to me the other day that it's kind of unfortunate that philosophers have been at the forefront of our thinking about animals because it makes it seem complicated. It makes it seem very academic when it's really not all that complicated. So do you find that, that we've been focusing perhaps more on on the philosophical arguments than, I mean, because your course runs the gamut of all sorts of different not just arguments, but just different aspects of thinking about animals. So you're not, are you saying that the philosophers really aren't at the center anymore? I think the philosophers are useful and important in thinking about it because part of part of knowing what it is you want to be doing involves having some roadmap of what you're trying to do. You know, otherwise somebody might say, oh, is it okay to eat lab-grown meat? And you might not know what the answer is because you don't have you know, so you don't have the framework to think about it. But I don't think you need something as complicated as utilitarianism or deontology to think about it. A lot of the most sort of terrific vegans are people who are not steeped in that at all and really are thinking of it in much more direct ways. I think sometimes the the academic way of thinking about it can actually provide a a kind of escape hatch for people who don't want to to do what it looks like they need to do. So I remember that a few of the justices from the Israeli Supreme Court came to talk at Columbia and it was a year. Oh that gosh, was, I, re- I remember that event. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> and I was teaching at Columbia that, that year. So I went, I was visiting and I went to the thing and it was either... I might have asked this question or someone else might have asked this question, but she was talking about the basic foods versus the luxury foods and how foie gras is a luxury food and therefore it's cruel, but chicken is a basic food. And so I or someone else said, well, humans don't need to eat chickens. So in what sense is it a basic food? Like, why isn't it just like foie gras? And also the idea that it was unnatural to make foie gras, but it's natural to do what goes on on farms. It's just not true. And she said, well, you're entitled to your lifestyle. <laughs> you know, and that was yeah. the, the well, I, mean, I think that's evidence that there just really wasn't an answer. At the same time, I've always thought well of the court in the sense that it may not have been an intellectually honest way to do it, but they found a way to do it. <laughs> they did something. Yeah. They're not going to ban all meat production, you know, like the, the, the Supreme Court really couldn't get away with that. So they they did manage to ban frog bar production, which was something. It's maybe not a really, really great way to look at it, but <laughs> <laughs> right. I always had some sympathy for it. Yeah, you know? no, and I, I mean, they showed more compassion than our Supreme Court yeah. seems yeah. capable of doing. So that was something, but... They took like it the whole, seriously. But I think they were using 
words to just avoid reality. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Lawyers have been known to do that. Uh, (laughs) Philosophers have been known to do that. Yeah. The the arguments back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. and, And then you end up not actually doing anything. But still in all that, who are the thinkers, not just, you know, the, the philosophers that you do kind of focus on and, and what kind of impact do they have on the students? Well, we talk about Peter Singer and we read quite a bit of Gary Francione's work. I would say that a lot, well, some of the students who've had an exposure to this sort of material before read Animal Liberation and that that was potentially a huge thing, and that's when they became vegetarian or whatever. So he's an important thinker in that sense. I do think that the utilitarian approach has some flaws, some problems, and we talk about those. And I really like Gary Francione's approach, but and we have an interesting discussion around, he has a piece where he says that if you were torturing a dog, with a blowtorch and you got pleasure out of it, is that unnecessary suffering? And everyone would say yes. And then suddenly, if you're doing the same thing, but it's to make food that you don't need, (laughs) then isn't that pretty much the same thing? And we have a discussion about is, is sadism a morally relevant feature of what's going on, or is it only the fact that you're causing suffering in order to have pleasure that you could have another way. And so he has a lot of provocative analogies and, and arguments that, that are interesting. Better. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I always find also that his central, I don't want to call it a discovery, but point that it's property, it's a legal issue and it's property status that has has warped the way we think about animals is is always very impactful on the students. You know, I have always found, you know, it's not that hard to find writings that make cogent arguments um, for animals. Like there are a number of interesting approaches. None of them may be perfect, but it's so hard to find anything that make cogent arguments against animal rights. I mean, I guess it's just you know, most thinkers have just felt comfortable not having to uh, justify it because it's just the way things are done. So do you, like, do you have any, are, are there any writings that you rely on to, to present opposing points of view? When we're doing the philosophers, we look at, I think a little bit at Carl Cohen and one other person who makes the case that animals don't have language. And if you don't have language, then you can't have interests. And we talk about that. And what's really interesting is that students find this really offensive because it would deny rights to people with with extreme autism. Like that sort of immediately comes to mind for people, which wasn't always true. But I think now there's much more of an awareness about autism and so on. So people will say, like, why and how can you say someone doesn't have an interest just because they don't have a language and it doesn't make any sense? So, I mean, I don't think it's a very compelling argument against, but I don't really, I find that the ones who sound convincing when they argue against, it's because they're lying about some fact or another, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like what? Like, like if they say, oh, you know, the, the slaughterhouse, as long as, you know, everybody, like, they, they don't feel a thing, you know, that, that sort of thing. And it's, oh, right. yeah. As like, lo- we shouldn't cause them unnecessary suffering. Of course we shouldn't. 
but you know, it's okay to eat them. Like it, it it's oh, just right. based on complete fake factual made up things. No, exactly. <laughs> Fantasies. I, when I gave that, that lecture, I mentioned before at the ag school, which I should have been sort of more aware that it was not going to be fun. But, <laughs> but yeah, I could have told you that. But I, I, you know, the professor invited me and I didn't fully realize that I think he invited me as a kind of boogeyman that he could then argue against, but I didn't realize it at the time. So, so one of them said Cargill, you know, they have inspections and everything is done very well. And I've been to one of their things and it's not painful for the animals. And I said, you, you think that the inspections are a surprise to the slaughterhouse? And she's like, yeah, they don't know in advance. <laughs> and it's just like, that is just false. You know, that is really not true. So like even I know, I mean, I'm, I'm hardly, a, you know, an expert in the field, but even I know that, like, it's not hard to find out that all inspections are scheduled. Right, right. And it's the USDA is really in this weird kind of double position where it's supposed to regulate, but also promote this industry. And so what they end up doing is they they regulate in very sort of hands-off ways so that that helps to promote. <laughs> they can use the faux regulation as a means of promotion. Do your students change over the course? Do you, do you see significant changes in students' attitudes by being exposed to these materials? I do. I do. When I've I've taught it like the first year that I taught it, I think it was really sort of very unfamiliar to people and they, you know, they were interested, but it was, it was foreign. And then over time, there was one year, a few years ago when more than half the class was vegan from the beginning, which was really sort of a milestone in a way. And I think that was unusual, but over time, people are much more sort of aware of the environmental aspect of it. And they, so they come in a little bit more educated about these things and they can jump right in. Yeah, I, I find that it, it still ranges a lot. That I'm always surprised that there are students who really don't, you know, they took it because they like their dog or it was at a good time or something. Right. I don't know. I don't know why <laughs> they took it. <laughs> I have one, one of my lecturers that I have each year is Milton Mills. And he talks about, he makes gives a lecture about how it is not natural to eat meat. And it's sort of interesting to hear people. He gets the most pushback in some ways because people think it is natural. And so if you say it isn't, you know, but he explains how our large intestines and small intestines are long the way that herbivore intestines are long. He shows us how our teeth are really not suited to slicing the way that carnivores teeth are and that we can sort of go back and forth like chewing which a tiger can't like they don't can't chew the pregnancies are shorter for carnivores because and um, and what he calls on real omnivores like bears and it's because they have to be able to hunt and that's a very I mean, it's very physical. And if they're pregnant and they're like, like it would make it hard to, to hunt. And that the herbivores have long pregnancies, like cows have nine month pregnancies, like humans. And he goes through all these different things and, and explains how that we are made for walking around a lot and picking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's fun, you know, to kind of read, you know, like think of stuff we knew already in a new frame. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I've always thought that arguments seemed pretty obvious, like like the great apes. I mean, they're not all herbivores, but they all are either omnivores who evolved from herbivores or in the process of evolving from herbivores. I mean, that's like, why would we be any different? It, it's crazy that people don't know this stuff. You actually spend a lot of the class, I noticed from your syllabus, along with inviting guest speakers on these issues, discussing nutrition, not just whether we are by nature herbivores, but real nutritional issues. I, I'm just I'm just curious why you focus on that so much. Is it is it just another argument for being vegan? Do you really consider it part of the rationale? I think it's both. I think it is part of a reason to be vegan when you point out that these things are healthy. I've had a student whose boyfriend had irritable bowel syndrome or some version of that, and he started eating this way and it completely remitted. And he was so grateful. I mean, he wasn't even in the class, <laughs> but he he was so grateful. And he went on the trip to Farm Sanctuary we took at the end of the semester. And he told me, I'm going to work on my girlfriend to get her vegan too. <laughs> you know, so I feel like if you find that it's making you feel better, then you just have a sense of love for, for this whole way of eating. And also, if people think they can't get what they need, without animal products, then they're going to be completely closed to the possibility of going vegan. I mean, that's what I used to think, that it was just a deficient diet because that's how people described it. So for me, it's really important to make it clear that this is not a deficient diet, that you are you don't have to do all sorts of balancing proteins or what, you know, that you can get what you need without eating animals and animals don't really give you that much. I mean, it's so important for all of us to remember because we're so used to this and used to this being true and adjusted to this and and know how healthy it is to be vegan that we can, I, I think we can discount the health argument a bit. And And as you say, it's not just a matter of arguing to people that they should go vegan for their health. It's arguing that there's no reason for them not to go vegan based on health. People don't know that. They really don't know it. So part of the case for doing it is it's not necessary to eat this other way. And in order to show it's not necessary means that this is a diet that you can live with. This is a good diet. It's healthy. It's, it's varied and so on. So that's absolutely right. But it, it's not a reason not to do it. Like there's this cutting down resistance is part of the process in addition to giving positive incentive. So I, I asked this question of everybody and nobody has an answer to it. So don't, well, maybe you'll be the, the one, but <laughs> like people really, a, a lot of people, not everybody, there are the psychopaths out there, but people really do care about animals or think they care about animals. And, you know, they wouldn't tolerate seeing an animal abused in front of them. And yet this goes on and on and on. And unlike we first, when we all first thought when we went vegan, oh, I just have to tell everybody <laughs> that is not true. So... What is it about humans? What is it about human nature that allows this to continue in the face of, of knowledge of how, how it's, it's possible to stop it? I think that we are very oriented to what is in front of our face. And if we are not seeing the animal, we are just seeing the sliced up muscle tissue cooked up, then we are very good at ignoring or or just paying no attention to the suffering. And I think that's a big part of it. 
Like if people had to actually select the animal that they would kill, then I think it would be easier for them to find their way to veganism. That's not to say that people don't acclimate to violence. Of course they do. And people who grew up on animal farms talk about how traumatic it was because they would raise the animal from birth and get a prize and then that animal would be slaughtered. So that was really painful. One farmer told me how he used to, like his family let him put the name of the cow on that slice of beef and the kitchen the refrigerator so he wouldn't eat that. You know, Elsie would it would say Elsie on that piece of meat. So he wouldn't he wouldn't eat that. But you see how the you know the sense of immediacy works in favor of animals, at least initially until you've completely desensitized the person. So in a way the factory farming era has made people more receptive because they aren't seeing every day all, and they haven't become desensitized yet. But you have to titrate it because if you expose them to too much, then they become desensitized too, and then they don't care. So it's it's a it's a moving target. Yeah, and the target is human nature, which is hard to understand. I don't know whether you feel this way, but I think possibly you do, that I've always thought of the goal. Like my goal is getting people to want to go vegan. And that seems like one of the goals of this course. But I am facing the fact that, that it doesn't really work in that straightforward way as a general rule. I mean, for some people, obviously, for the people listening to this podcast, yeah, we heard what was going on. We went vegan, seemed like the thing to do. You know, I mean, it's a cliche, but you plant seeds. And I have gone, I went to an alumni event a number of years ago and a few people came up to me and they said, I I became a vegan because my friend was in your class. And so she brought home the stuff that you were talking about and I decided to become vegan. So you just don't know. People typically don't just learn something and then never speak of it again. (laughs) So somebody that we don't even know could be exposed to an idea that they run with. Yeah. I always love that story that I heard Peter Singer tell once when he's very early in his career, he was at a conference, a philosopher's conference. Sounds like a lot of fun. And um, <laughs> and the guy next to him, he was having lunch with, you know, just took the salad and said, you know, something along the lines of he, he just wasn't eating animals because he thought there was a problem with it. And you know, one thing led to another. You never know who you're influencing. Wow. Yeah. That's that's great. At the same time, that wasn't really just my question because I do think that a lot of people are thinking that, and the way it seems to be going is that it's not just we've hit a wall, like nobody's going vegan. It's very, very slow. Vegan food is growing by leaps and bounds in a lot of different directions. It's everywhere. I mean, we all know that it's so easy to find and, and it seems to increase every every day. So people are leaning into eating more vegan food, but they do not want to change their is it their identity. Like they don't want to make a commitment. Do you think this is true? And do you think there's a way to change our tactics to kind of adjust to this and make the most of it? I think it is true. I think that people are like you see, I saw a pocketbook online the other day and it said vegan. And, and I thought that was great. And I feel like there are people who aren't vegan, but who will consider that a selling point of the pocketbook. And that you're right, they don't want to commit. I think that 
it's kind of like the word feminist many years ago that totally never thought of that women's rights, but I'm not a feminist. And I feel like it's the same (laughs) kind of thing. Like vegan has these connotations of militancy and extremity and so on. But, but, you know, I'm sort of happy to see them changing their behavior. And I, it, Usually, like if somebody's moving that way, they'll they'll kind of make a little announcement if they've moved that way and remain there. But they don't want everyone getting their either hopes up or <laughs> hackles up, depending on what it is. So, but yeah, you're right. There's so many amazing foods. I went to the Rochester butcher, the vegan butcher, that and and I was I was so impressed with <laughs> with their offerings, and it's so cool. And they have a sign up that says something like, here's where you get your protein here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I love them. I mean, I of course live in Rochester for those of you listening who don't realize they're Rochester, New York. And yeah, they're called grass fed. They're a sm- just a small little shop. They're all vegan. Um, and yeah, and they're totally in it for the animals. I mean, there's animal rights stuff all over the place. I love them. And their food is really, really good. And KFC yeah. now has Beyond Chicken Nuggets. and Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, it's it, like it's crazy. I mean, if you had told me this 10 years ago, I would have thought there would be a lot more vegans, but I wouldn't have thought there would be so much veganism. It's it, So don't rely on me to make predictions about anything. <laughs> so yeah. you recently wrote an article on the very bizarre comments that the Pope made. <laughs> about people loving their dogs, which seems to be a problem for him. You want to try to like him. He named himself Francis, but come on. So could you just like tell us a little bit about what you had to say? So the Pope said something like that there are these families and they're not having children and they're having pets instead. And it's very selfish. And I think that it probably goes to some kind of Catholic idea that you're supposed to have children if you're married and that if you don't, then that's bad. And But it seems to land and it, it doesn't land well in a time where we have overpopulation and the environment is a disaster. And you know what I mean? Then the idea that it's selfish to have more children. And on Facebook, there are all these hilarious that somebody wrote, yes, everyone knows that the one thing Catholics don't do is have enough children. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> I went through all of these things. And for me, it was a good opportunity to talk about this kind of competition between animal rights and human rights that people set up, even though I don't think that's a real thing. And they'll say, you know, don't you care about humans? Like, I'm vegan for animals. Don't you care about humans? And it's like, they're not asking me about all, you know, the time I spend doing things that help no one, (laughs) you know, like that, as opposed to like, at least I'm helping animals. And also, of course, helping animals is helpful to humans because we're producing so much less waste and we're using up less water and on and on. So so I tried to talk about that. But I think some of the responses on behalf of the Pope really had more to do with like when having children is is appropriate and natural and that, you know, so it's okay to be celibate, but it's not okay to use birth control which I've followed this, but I, it's not really my thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it would just give you a headache. Like, like. <laughs> One of the things that we do in the course that is interesting is Aisha Akhtar comes and talks about experimentation. And I think a lot of people have the view that the animal experimentation is really the only reason we have cures for diseases. And so she talks about how utterly 
unhelpful animal experimentation is like we have all of these illnesses that really affect rats and humans very differently. And in fact, she points out that even with, if you go from like a mouse to a rat, you're going to see very different reactions. So you can imagine going to a primate that the reactions are different. Something like over 90, 95% of stuff that's safe and effective on animals fails in humans. And she says the big cost that you don't know about is where it really hurts the animal. So we don't bother to test it. And it would have been a miracle cure for humans. And, you know, so, so I think the, the factual assumption that, that these experiments are really useful is one that she debunks very effectively. One of the things that I always find interesting is, aside from the question of whether animal experimentation actually produces beneficial human outcomes, I mean, assuming it does, I find that my students are more likely to, I I used to assign this particular paper that would kind of like tease out these attitudes and suggestions for progress. They're more disturbed by animal experimentation and willing to stop it, even based, even with the assumption that it's producing beneficial outcomes, than to eliminate animal agriculture. I find that so extraordinary. But do you find like the same attitudes among your students? We haven't compared the two, but I have found that attitude like in, at large, like people tend to get more worked up about animal experiments than about food. And Mark Twain was a perfect example of this. He thought vivisection was horrible. He said, I don't care if it helps people. He made it clear it doesn't matter. And yet he had no qualms about eating animals. You know, he wrote these very moving stories about experimentation. So there hasn't been that much whitewashing of experimentation, I think, and that might be why, that, you know, we have so much whitewashing of farming, like, oh, the farm, look at all the cows looking so peaceful. I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, public relations that farmers have been doing for a very long time, making it seem like this very bucolic and very peaceful profession. When someone says, oh yeah, I'm a farmer, it just sounds like, oh, you're at one with nature and all this stuff and experiments, no one's really tried to market it to the same extent. So when you think about animal experiments, you really think about the torture. Whereas you think about animal farming, you have words like processing plant, you know, you have all of this euphemism and public relations to try to hide what's really going on and maybe less of that. And so in a way, it it suggests that the animal movement that had focused so much on experimentation might have been more effective and had, you know, talked about the farming sooner. Yeah, no, even in my history in this movement, which is from maybe the 90s, there was just really this beginning of the effort to focus on animals in in agriculture, as opposed to the major focus being animals in, in vivisection. And I think also, I mean, it's possible. I think probable that even in Mark Twain's time, which isn't that long ago, it was widely believed, it's still widely believed that this is just necessary, you know, that we have to eat animals. So, you know, sad, but we shouldn't think about it. So we don't. Um, and, <laughs> exactly. But whereas vivisection was kind of more, and it, I mean, obviously animals have been experimented on upon for a long time, but but it didn't really become a widespread practice until relatively recently. So it was it was newer 
that might have a, an effect too, which I think I always like to think of this as a reason why every single vegan is just by existing and not dying, <laughs> proving this incredibly important point that, yeah, you don't starve to death if you don't eat animals. You don't, you know, get inadequate nutrition if you don't eat animals. Like, no, look at us. We're we're eating <laughs> plenty of food. That's where some of the ignorance comes in, like where people say, well, don't you need to get the vitamins from animals products? And it's like animal products don't really have vitamins, like except organ meats tend to have some, but that's not really like vitamins are only in plants. There's things that we call vitamins like D3, but they stick that into milk. It's not even there naturally. So, And B12 is my favorite. Like they all, you know, and you can't get B12 from vegetables. It's true. But the only reason you get it from animals, I mean, you get it from dirt. That's where you really get it from. And the only reason you used to get it from animals is because animals consumed a lot of dirt along with all of their grass. And now the only reason you get it from animals is because they supplement the animals. So you might as well just supplement yourself. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. That's right. So you have a lot of other areas of expertise. This is certainly not your only one. And among them, you write a great deal about reproductive rights and other aspects of feminism. And can you just revisit this issue, which we touched on before, about what you see as the intersections between animal issues and other social justice issues and and how open your students are to hearing about these? I think you have to be really careful because since people think about animals as inferior, and that's their starting assumption, if you compare oppressions of humans to oppressions of animals, they will become offended pretty rapidly. But on the other hand, I think the way I like to think about it is in terms of the mindset rather than the victim. Like they're different victims, same mindset. And the mindset of it's everyone is my property. Everything is to serve me and my group, whatever that group is. And I get to take advantage and hurt others. And it doesn't matter if they're suffering. That's such a consistent pattern for every kind of persecution that people have. And part of it is that we lie about our victims. Like that's a very common aspect of all different kinds of persecutions. One of the things that I thought of when you were saying that, you know, seeing animals being you know, tortured, it doesn't really give you a full sense of who that animal is and what that animal could be. But in a way, like the outfits that people put, that they put on the prisoners at the concentration camps during the Holocaust, I think the whole thing was intended to just make them look like something other than a human, you know, and they they would of course be starving. So they, their faces just didn't look like human faces. And they had on these ridiculous, whatever striped pajamas and and I feel like we kind of do this with animals like we we put them in this place where they don't look anything like what they could and then we say see they're they're just stupid they're just whatever but I do think there's the the intersection is in the sense of like I am here and I get to do to you because you're not and I think people understand understand that. And some of the hierarchies are actually among animals. You know, people will say, well, this is terrible. They're doing it to a chin or to a dog or whatever. Like the hierarchy might either be based on how closely related they are to us or on how fond we are of that animal. And of course, pigs are so smart and so sweet. And it's just, you know, it's horrible 
what happens to them. And and so we talked about like, is a pig morally different from a dog other than that we use them differently? It, it remains perplexing why it is so hard to get that argument across, particularly with pigs who most, you know, I, I heard really long time ago that almost every farm animal sanctuary on their mailers for funding will put a pig on because people love pigs. I mean, people are drawn to pigs, but what we do to them is, is extraordinary, just extraordinary. So have you seen any progress in the time you've been teaching this class? Have things shifted? Is the way you teach it different because things have shifted at all? Or do you basically think that we're, you know, factually, clearly, we're sort of in the same place we've always been. We haven't made a lot of progress for a lot of animals, but is something changing? I'm going to say yes, because I want to think that something is changing. And I do think that there have been some shifts in the population generally that it's now a thing that people are vegan. You know, there was somebody who was working with my family and he mentioned his daughter is vegan. You know, you know like there, it's much- that happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's much more common. And I feel like the social barrier is the, is the main barrier. Like once a lot of people go vegan, it will not be a problem. Like we have enough delicious food. It's not an issue. It's really just people not feeling alone. And like, you know, they don't have any any social group that also eats the same way. We have in, in for many years until COVID, we used to get together with a group of vegans for Thanksgiving. And there was something really nice about that, you know, it was like a potluck and everyone's bringing vegan dishes and it's so delicious and you know you leave just as unable to move as anybody at thanksgiving so i feel like that's a really important part of things that of course i can't provide in a course right i can't have like okay here are some friends you're gonna have who are vegan if you go vegan but you know but i think also people in law school think a lot and that if they're thinking about this for part of the time that that's that's only going to help and I, I have seen, it's just more popular. It's less weird, I guess. You know, the way people eat has become, people have more rules in general around the way they eat. So the fact that uh, they might have rules around the way they eat animals doesn't seem quite as weird. And I think if I can draw out what you're saying a little bit more, because I think I would take this assumption from it. If people are more comfortable, it, it, people we have always thought we just have to tell them about animals and then they'll stop eating them. But really, it might go the other way around. If they stop eating them, then when we tell them about animals, they might hear. Yes, that is absolutely true. Actually, a friend of mine was told by her doctor to stop eating animals because her cholesterol was high, which I was actually very impressed that I never hear that. <laughs> Doctors actually have <laughs> yeah, here, take these drugs. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And so she did. And it wasn't at all for animal rights reasons or ethics, but this was around the time that Romney was running for for president. And there was the story about how he had put the dog on the roof of his car. (laughs) He was hosing down. I remember. And a lot of people were talking about it. And and I remember my friend saying, you know, I don't understand. Like they're getting all upset at Mitt Romney, but meanwhile, they're eating burgers and sitting on leather couches. So what's up? And, and it was really like she had not yet, like suddenly because she wasn't eating them, she started seeing it everywhere. That is where my hope lies with all of these new foods, people trying them, people getting more comfortable with them, that 
that it's not like that's going to change the world in and of itself. But I do think that it allows more people, not everybody, but more people to wake up to this horror that that we've made of the world. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are there are moments. I mean, I feel like we're in denial a lot of the time or we couldn't get out of bed because like I walk by this farm and there are these dogs there and then there are the pigs and they're they're like adolescent pigs. And it just breaks my heart every day to see them, you know, because it's like. It's, it's kind of like in the movie Babe, like, you know, there isn't any good ending for these animals. Well, on that note, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I can't wait for a cheerful note to end the interview because uh, we just don't have many of them. But this has been really fascinating. I wish I had taken this course when I was in law school. And, you know, like I said, I, I maybe other people are teaching something like this in law school, but it's certainly not the way I teach. It's all law, 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 you know. And trying to to work the facts in amongst the law, because, you know, obviously the law is a matter of matching the law to the facts, but not this real thoughtful analysis of this huge, huge social issue. And I don't think many people are teaching it that way. So thanks for sharing with us about how you go about it. I, 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 it really sounds fascinating. Well, thank you. Thanks. And I wish I had taken your course when I was in law school. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get to the interview today, Marianne, you mentioned that we have a couple very special guests today. And I've been like a little self-conscious since we started recording three minutes and 42 seconds ago because they're listening and I'm not used to people listening while we're recording it. So I just assume that we're only talking to each other. Well, you haven't, you haven't Sherry, screwed up yet. <laughs> okay. Well, the night's still young. We're so excited to be joined for TOTS, which is what we call Top of the Show. That's an internal logo in, that we made up. And we are so, so thrilled to be joined by two of our favorite brains in the world of animal advocacy, animal law, and beyond. And that is Sherry Kolb and Michael Dorf, who have both been on the podcast before and were recent guests for our Flock Friday. So... Welcome again. Welcome back to our headhouse, Sherry and Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Yeah, thanks uh, for having us. Well, we're excited to chat with you because we always have like lit up conversations with you. You always make us think. For people who aren't familiar with Sherry and Michael, they are professors at Cornell Law School and the authors of Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights. They among, talked about among that. Among other things. Back. Among yes, many, many they other things. About that. Back on episode 329, they're also married. So they... To each, to each other. other. <laughs> to, e to each other. <laughs> so they kindly went into like different rooms in their house to record this, which is great. So we wanted to actually just dive into a subject that is very hot right now. And I guess it always is, but right now more than ever. So Marianne, do you want to contextualize this a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, well, because we spoke to to Sherry and Michael long ago about, about their book about abortion and animal rights, all of a sudden, the landscape just seems to have changed on, on thinking about abortion. We thought that <laughs> was kind of put away, but it's not. And it is at 
again, at risk of being made illegal, at least in, in many states. And, and so we wanted to revisit some of these issues. And we did that with Sherry and Michael on, on one of our flock calls. And it was just so good and insightful that we wanted to share it with, with everyone. And uh, I'll just start off by asking, because if people haven't read the book or if it's been too long since they've read the book or listened to that interview, can you just tell us what your basic themes were and, and currently are regarding the relationship between fetuses and animals and, and why you, why people shouldn't think about them as exactly the same thing? Yes. So we've definitely evolved a bit since the, that book, but what we did in the book is to suggest first that there are some common themes between the two areas. Like for instance, you feel compassion for the fetus, you feel compassion for animals and they're, um, status of the fetus and the animal is contested, whether it counts as a real somebody or not, and, and so on. So there are some surface similarities, that, and it goes on from there. But we ultimately conclude that they're really quite different because the, um, the position that, uh, that a fetus or an embryo or a zygote has to stay inside this woman who may not be interested in carrying it to term, that that, um, that, that involves sort of uh, exploitation of the woman and that also it doesn't matter how, like a zygote doesn't feel anything, it doesn't really have the capacity to be anything other than a cell, and yet, you know, that the pro-life, so-called pro-life movement wants to protect that against a woman who's an actual person. And that the focus in animal rights is really about sentience. So for instance, if there were a cell and you told an animal rights person, this is a horse zygote, they would not say, well, let's make sure to stick it inside some horse so it becomes a horse. You know, they would say, well, that's just, you know, that isn't anything yet. So it's kind of the difference between human DNA as the test of value versus uh, sentience as the test. To, to, if I can uh, make that uh, less accessible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> role. Please do. That's Please why we do. invited yeah. you, Michael. Uh, <laughs> right. Thank you. Uh, a sort of uh, one way to put that is that for people who are opposed to all abortion, uh, humanity is a sufficient condition for rights. As long as something is human in any respect, right? So a zygote, it's just a cell, an embryo, a very, very early developed, uh, uh, could become a human if, if gestated and so forth. As long as it's human, it has rights. And if something doesn't have, isn't human, then it doesn't have any rights. By contrast, the animal rights movement is all against human supremacy, right? So that's that, that speciesism. So our view is whether human or non-human, if a being is sentient, then it has rights. And so we began this project by looking at a, what we thought was a puzzle, which was why there was so little overlap between the anti-abortion movement and the animal rights movement, which was we were struck by because we had met some people who were in both. And we thought, well, why isn't this a more common position? After all, they seem to have, as Sherry said, compassion both for fetuses and animals. But the more we got into it and the more we've thought about it, the more we've concluded that actually they are fairly, um, uh, not quite diametrically opposed, right? But they are they are fairly opposed movements because the animal rights 
position is humanity is not a necessary condition for rights, whereas the anti-abortion movement's position is humanity is a sufficient condition for rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that ends ends up there is space where one could be on you know any could take any combination of views, but uh, in practice, uh, it turns out that uh, being against abortion. Uh, makes one uh, tend not to be very sympathetic to the animal rights position because you sort of fetishize being a member of the human species. But but what about sentience? I mean, at some point, fetuses. I I, I think the, the the what you've already said kind of takes care of an enormous amount of what's controversial about what's going on right now, the moment of conception, and the, what I consider the complete ridiculousness of that. Of, of setting it at that date. But what about, particularly from an animal rights perspective, if sentience matters, when does the fetus become sentient? Does it, has anybody ever really thought about that a lot? And should it matter? Well, it's, I think that it matters to the morality of an abortion. So if somebody, like when I hear about, you know, um, OBGYN practices that do 26-week abortions, it makes me a little bit queasy and uncomfortable because I just feel like I wish that had happened like 10 weeks ago or something when it wasn't. So we don't know exactly when it is sentient. It seems to be around the 20-something mark, although there are people who say it's much earlier or much later. Um, And our position is not that abortion should be prohibited at that point. So the idea that the fetus has rights, I think the fetus has interests, and but there's still this other person in the mix and that we shouldn't be compelling her to carry it to term. Um, but there are these laws that used to be, I mean, that I guess they exist now. They, they won't, they, they'll be preempted soon, but where you you can't have a pain-capable abortion, and those tend to be around 20 weeks. There's no really good reason to think that the fetus is sentient at 20 weeks. But what struck me and Michael about that line is that it suggests that a lot of people in the public who are not firmly on one side or the other on this issue, that they do think it matters, that sentience does matter to them. And that's why I think they're called pain capable, even if in fact they're, they're not. Mm-hmm. You, you see a variation of that, I think, even in uh, laws like the Texas SB8, right, which uh, the so-called heartbeat laws, which don't involve heartbeats, they involve some electrical activity. But I think the the people who are opposed to all abortions are appealing to a sort of broader middle of people who I think are at least, as Sherry says, morally queasy about abortions the later on you go. And I think the w- part of that is a kind of, you know, I'm thinking misguided, uh, almost aesthetic idea that the more it looks like a baby, the more it actually has the rights of a baby. But I think that's because we tend to think in those sorts of categories, right? That's It's why, you know, um, we as vegans uh, – take note of the kinds of animals who can have reactions to stimuli because they're indications of the things that are sort of markers for sentience. So even though I think in the general conversation, most people don't even know what the word sentience means if they've ever heard of it. I do think that something like it is driving a lot of people's moral intuitions apart from whatever you know religious beliefs they're bringing to it. 
Yeah, there was a, a book, I think it's called This Common Secret, but I'm not sure, where a doctor who does abortions wrote about her experience as a doctor who does abortions. And it's really, it was really tough. Like she had to wear bulletproof vest and she had to travel like four in the morning. And, and there was always this one protester who was there at the airport when she when she would go, like she felt like, okay, nobody will be around at this time. And there was this one protester and he would talk to her all friendly until they got to the location. And then he would start with his, you know, your murderer and <laughs> the rest. And she said in the book, I remember that she only does abortions till 14 weeks for because ethically she can't justify <laughs> doing later. And I don't know why she selected 14 weeks because she doesn't, my recollection, she doesn't explain it. She just kind of sets it out there that that's when, you know, that she does it till 14 weeks. Maybe that's her sort of like buffer zone to sentience or something like that. But I think that the basic idea that being able to feel things makes you a somebody as opposed to a something is I think fairly widely shared that intuition. And so that in a sense, the pro-life movement is pushing against that when it talks about conception. Yeah, it almost seems like it's overplaying their hand. Can we just go back a second? And and because I, I just find that this term sentience, which I, personally, I hate the word because nobody, as you point out, nobody knows what it means. I don't know why we don't use conscious. But do you want to and I, I once I once was listening to an interview with a fairly sophisticated writer. She she was a, a science fiction writer and she talked about writing a book about sentient cats I was like, what? You don't think cats are sentient now? Like, <laughs> what? And a lot of people wow. think it means something very different than what the way we use it. So can you kind of define what you would mean as, as sentient? I mean, you just use the word feeling. Is it as simple as that? It's the ability to have subjective experiences, right? So to feel, so feeling is an example of something that someone who is sentient uh, experiences. But if you imagine somebody who's anesthetized, but uh, awake, they, they're sentient. Um, it's a being that is capable of having their own experiences, right? So just to give an example, right, you know, a toaster uh, is not sentient, even though it does stuff, you can have an electronically programmed toaster, uh, you could uh, destroy your toaster, you know, you, you, uh, you short it out, right? Uh, and that would be unfortunate for the person who owns the toaster. But the toaster doesn't experience any any harm from that. Uh, by contrast with, you know, a dog, a cat, a horse, a pig, uh, a, cow. A, st a stuffed animal. <laughs> right. A stuffed animal would also right. be another, right. good, another good example. Yes. Is, like <laughs> yes. yep. I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Uh, and relatedly, I, I've, this keeps occurring to me whenever I think about this issue. I've certainly heard of animal activists who feel that these issues are related, but I've never heard of an anti-abortion activist who cared about animals. Have you? Yeah, we know yeah. some. Yeah, there was somebody at Summerfest where we went for, we used to go uh, each summer for these conferences and food and whatever. And she was very much, she was, and actually Bruce Friedrich, like, he didn't say that he was, but he, he very much found the two positions to be in sync with with each other like we were talking about i was telling him that we were writing about this and he's like oh yeah these they totally go together and you know he really seemed not necessarily to hold the positions but to think that they made sense together and then there's that guy who authored dominion matthew scully, oh, yeah, matthew scully. He, 
Um, in addition, when um, shortly after our book came out, uh, Peter Singer hosted a little mini symposium on it, and two of the commentators were uh, uh, anti-abortion but sympathetic. They're, they're not vegans. I think actually you had one of them as a guest in your show, yeah, Charles, yeah, yeah. Charlie Camosi. Well, that was uh, when we found um, out he wasn't vegan in the middle of my interview. Right, right. <laughs> but he is, as Jasmine said, sort of sympathetic to the uh, the animal. No, he admits he should be and, vegan. He's one of those. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, right. right. So, so there was him they're... and, and uh, a professor called uh, uh, Karen Pryor Swallow. And uh, and so they they were both sort of critiquing our book from the um, anti-abortion side uh, right. while at least having some concern for animals. So there is there is a position there is a position. It, it is a minority position, but there is there are people who occupy it. When you when you mentioned them, I feel a little bit nostalgia for the time when people thought we really listened to the anti-abortion side and fairly represented them because I've kind of lost interest in doing that in the last few months, <laughs> ever since the, the leaked opinion, uh, actually since the oral argument in, in Dobbs. So I'm, I have an easier time being generous when I'm not being like pummeled. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I am curious because you did say early on in this conversation that your perspectives have shifted. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? Well, I mean, now I'll just speak for myself because and then Michael can say whether he agrees or not. But I, I think that in some ways the pro-life movement is the opposite of the animal rights movement. And what I mean by that is that there's a certain kind of species narcissism about the pro-life movement that people, I think, somehow project themselves onto the zygote and they think, what if my mother hadn't had me? And it's like, yeah, the world would have been just about the same. <laughs> you know? like, but, you know, they and they so they project onto the zygote and they want to do all this stuff for the zygote, and even though the zygote's living inside somebody else. And then they they don't really care about animals for the most part, as you said, is because it doesn't really fit that. It's like an, it's an outsider. An animal is an outsider, a stranger. And that the animal rights movement says, you know, let's look around and see whether there's somebody who needs us, you know, as opposed to let's exploit someone who doesn't want to be pregnant to turn raw material into a child. I think it's, so it, it, I, for, I don't disagree with that, but I guess what I would say is that the discussion over the last several months, I think, has intensified my awareness of the extreme se sexism of the full-on anti-abortion position. So one of the things that's sort of notable about uh, Justice Alito's leaked draft, which Sherry has commented on in, uh, you know, over a dozen blog posts by now. Brilliant, on my blog, which brilliant is blog posts. Right, on, <laughs> right, is that it's sexist in all sorts of ways. So it repeated, it, it relies on Sir Matthew Hale, who is this uh, very famous uh, uh, English judge who sentenced two women to die for witchcraft, who uh, believed importantly that uh, in the marital rape exception, who thought that uh, rape victims shouldn't be believed. And, and, you know, Alito just relies on him matter of factly. There's no mention of the burdens that pregnancy places on women other than that, you know, some people think this is a big deal. Um, and it's, so it's, it's sort of erasing um, the pregnant person in this equation. And so then in some ways that ties into part of our book and some of Sherry's solo writing about how uh, much of the exploitation of animals is sort of parallel to 
what anti-abortion measures do, which is that they enlist female animals, uh, uh, dairy cows and layer hens in particular, into a reproductive servitude. So in that sense, I think the, the recent conversation has reinforced that element, which sort of goes along with what Sherry said about how the, there really is very little room for overlap between these two movements. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a really actually, great point. Go ahead, Sarah. Sherry. Somebody on, somebody on Facebook wrote, you know what they call someone who is forced to bear children for others? Livestock. And I, I almost repeated it, except that this is coming from a perspective that livestock is a legitimate category and that it's okay to do this to animals, but not to women. And so I didn't, you know, so I decided not to follow it or whatever, yeah. whatever it was. Um, because I, I, it's hard when you have like both two positions that are both kind of out, like out there in a, a certain way. And then you, you want to make sure you don't betray one by promoting the other. Mm-hmm. Well, there are so many inroads to interesting discussions regarding the overlaps between abortion rights and animal rights and just so many other things we could chat about. Uh, but I do, last... I do just want to add one thing. Like okay. I, I love the way this does open up this conversation about sentience. Cause I can imagine there are a lot of people who, when, if they thought about it and unless they're coming from an extremely religious position, don't agree that, 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 abortion should be banned um, from the moment of conception. They do agree. If they thought about it, they would agree. And you've pointed out, Sherry, I think that there are a few states that have laws to that effect, that it, that it starts basically at sentience. And it, you know, I just think we can't have people thinking about sentience too much. It's, it's, it, it's something that people just, just, they don't consider it in any serious way. And it is kind of the entire root of our movement. So I just wanted to to add that. I think it's an important moment to, to actually focus on that. I agree. I think that one of the things that I think is interesting, I mean, I just refer to Facebook again, but don't get me wrong. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but ha, there was some, heard that before. <laughs> somebody, had, yeah, but somebody had posted something like the, the cow doesn't give milk because she's a cow. She gives it because she's a mother. And I was thinking that the kinds of misconceptions and the idea that a cow is naturally giving milk is kind of similar to this idea that women are naturally pregnant. And so the idea of how a pregnant woman is the most natural thing and, you know, and it's terrible violence to put an end to it. When in fact, like if somebody said dropped a drug into a drink that you were having, and then as a result of it, you gained 70 pounds you created a whole other organ that would siphon off nutrients and oxygen from your bloodstream into that, um, made you vomit for like three months or more, you would be like, hey, I've been poisoned. <laughs> like, this is not a normal, um, this is not natural in any positive sense. And so, but, but we kind of assume like, oh yeah, the cow has these udders. I used to think that. We I all did. That- we all did. <laughs> And, you know, it's just it's just what cows are like. And it's like, hey, we're all mammals. But it kind of shows you both areas, I think, shows you how much laziness there is and how we think about moral issues when we're not forced to really delve into them. Or when we're motivated 
uh, to hold <laughs> yeah. particular positions to begin with. Even more so. That's true. Even more yeah. so. Yeah. So before before we let you go and get to our uh, main interview today, I just have a, a couple additional questions for you. First of all, Sherry, I know that you're a big fan of Christopher Sebastian, who was yes. on our show last week. And I'm not, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, and I'm not trying to just be a big ad for that episode. But what did you think? <laughs> I, 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 I love Christopher. I mean, he's great and he's so creative and comes up with really interesting ways of thinking about things that, you know, I'd never thought about before. Like he's talked about how dairy milk is actually, you know, the, the, the sort of um, fetishization of it is kind of white supremacist because people who aren't white have a harder time digesting it and so on. And, um, and what he was saying about, it was interesting what he was saying about the, um, about how on the farm there's all this sexual assault of animals in order to impregnate the animals, in order to make them ejaculate. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's really a chock full of sexual assault zone. And yet it's not considered to be a violation of the bestiality laws. And so I was thinking about why is that? Um, and what I came up with was that like, it's not considered sex unless the human is having pleasure. Mm. <laughs> like that's the, the, like the human is kind of in this, and I don't sound too pomo about it, but the human is kind of this, like the man. And we tend to discount and make invisible any sexual experiences where a man is not involved. And it could be that since the human, the human takes the place of, of the man as sort of the dominant character at the farm. And since that person is not doing it for sexual pleasure, therefore it doesn't count. Hmm. I, I, yeah. I do know that in, there's at least one state in which they actually wrote in an exception to the bestiality law um, really? for artificial insemination. But, but in general, I really do find it hard to believe anybody would ever get prosecuted for it. I think that's a fascinating thought of, of why it just isn't sex unless, unless a human is, is having a good time. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Sherry. I, I always appreciate your perspective. And I also wanted to know what else you two have up your sleeve. What What are you working on these days? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, we're each working on various other projects, but the, um, the animal-specific piece that we have that should be out... Uh, and available in print uh, relatively soon in the Journal of Law and Equality, which is a uh, MIT Press journal edited by three Harvard Law School professors. Um, I think it's called the American Journal of Law and Equality. Right, the American Journal of Law and Equality. Um, and um, generally they don't write about it, have animal stuff, but, but they, they're publishing our paper. It's called, If We Didn't Eat Them, They Wouldn't Exist. Uh, and it addresses that argument, which Sherry addressed a little bit in her book, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger, uh, and other questions people ask vegans, but we sort of take a deep dive into it, uh, right? The idea that, well, these animals were bred specifically to be eaten or for their products to be eaten. And so as long as they have um, decent lives or lives worth living up until the time that they're slaughtered or otherwise exploited, uh, you're actually doing them a favor when you consume them and their products. And so 
what the article does is first to say that's unrealistic in the vast majority of cases because the animals don't have lives worth living because they're suffering far outweighs any pleasure they get. It's a sort of fantasy notion of a farm. But we then take seriously, well, what if somebody really did have like, you know, a, a hobby farm where they really treated the animals well? Um, and we, uh, we describe that question as similar to a deep problem in moral philosophy known as the non-identity problem, which I can just illustrate very uh, briefly, right? So this, this is a class of problems. The classic example is, are descendants of people who suffered historical injustices like slavery and the Holocaust, etc., uh, made worse off by those historical injustices in light of the fact that they wouldn't have existed if not for those historical injustices because of so-called butterfly effects that brought together their parents on particular dates and times and so forth. Um, and I think everybody has a strong moral intuition that, of course, you can complain about this uh, terrible injustice done to your ancestors, even if it was necessary for your existence. And that, that has parallels in it. And we, so we, we're trying to explain the, the connections. But I haven't done that justice. You'll have to have us back for us to have it. <laughs> yes. No, I was just I thinking wait. that I would really love to. So please let us know when that is available and come back and discuss it with us. And, and can you let our listeners know how they can follow both of your work? Yes. So Sherry and I both write for um, uh, two main popular uh, – I use popular in quotation marks um, – uh, <laughs> That is widely available for free uh, uh, outlets. One is uh, a web magazine called Verdict, which is verdict.justia, J-U-S-T-I-A dot com. Uh, it's a law-oriented website, but it has legal commentary, and we have lots of stuff there. Uh, we alternate weeks, so uh, every week there's either a column by me or a column by Sherry. And then I have a blog, dorfonlaw.org, um, at which both Sherry and I and a few other people blog. And there, there are basically four people who blog regularly. Three out of the four of us are vegan. Uh, Neil Buchanan is the other vegan who blogs there regularly. Although a lot of the time it's not about animal issues, but sometimes it is. And sometimes it's on sort of animal adjacent issues like all of Sherry's uh, uh, flaming posts recently about uh, abortion. <laughs> Amazing. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So uh, hang on the line for just a few more minutes, but thank you both so much for sharing your insights on this subject with us. We always, always appreciate your perspectives. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Sherry and Michael. I'm so excited that you're here because you're here to talk about one of the most exciting things that's happened uh, whether good or bad, it's big in a long time in animal law. I'm glad to have your perspective. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. As I mentioned, uh, when I was introducing you, I, we're talking about, of course, the decision at the, in the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the state of New York, which is confusing for everybody else in the country. It's not called the Supreme Court. Um, and about Happy the Elephant. And and I, you know, we can't go into a whole analysis of the decisions, including the dissents, which are really important because, and I, I just really hope that people read them because they're pretty amazing in a lot of ways and really important going forward. But, but I, having said that, could you just kind of set the scene with a kind of brief description and reaction to what happened in the court of appeals? Sure. So, um, happy is an, uh, Asian elephant who is over 50 years old. She's spent nearly her, her entire life in captivity. And for most of that time, uh, she has been in the Bronx Zoo, which 
is where she is now. The reason she's called happy is because uh, the people who captured her thought it would be cute to name the various elephants after the seven dwarves and Snow White and the seven dwarves. And uh, the the other elephants in that group have since uh, perished. Um, there were a few who didn't get along so much with, with happy, uh, which is not surprising. Elephants in captivity are not nearly as gregarious as they are in their natural environment. The Bronx Zoo has uh, said it's going to discontinue its captive elephant program, so it's not clear why they're continuing to hold her, given that the plaintiffs, led by the Non-Human Rights Project, uh, have found an elephant sanctuary where she could live out her days in an environment much more suitable for an elephant. But the Bronx Zoo, despite not going forward with keeping elephants in captivity, is keeping happy. Uh, and uh, was therefore resisting this lawsuit that was brought on her behalf. As your listeners probably know, the Non-Human Rights Project, which brings these lawsuits, uh, styles them, as they did in cases involving some chimpanzees, as habeas corpus actions. Uh, Habeas corpus is a Latin term for a writ that a court can issue that orders a captor or a guardian or a custodian to release a prisoner. And so if the lawyers were successful in arguing that Happy's captivity was unlawful, then the order would have been to release her into the custody of the elephant sanctuary. There's some discussion in the opinions about whether habeas corpus is appropriate where you're attempting to move somebody from one form of captivity to another, but that's ultimately just beside the point. There are lots of examples involving humans in which a person can bring a habeas corpus action to challenge particular custody in which they're in, even though they're not ultimately going to be free. They can get a new trial, they can have their death penalty overturned, and so forth. What's unusual about the case, of course, is that habeas corpus has traditionally been employed by human beings. And so in order to get the case before the court, the uh, Non-Human Rights Project argued that Happy should be regarded as a legal person. Now, many people, I think, naturally tend to think that a, a person is synonymous with a human being, but that's not universally true in the law. Uh, corporations are persons within the meaning of the law. Municipalities can be persons, other governmental units. And so the argument was that if those other non-human entities can be persons, certainly Happy who is a, a being with all sorts of capacities uh, that make her like humans in various important respects, ought to be treated as a person under the law as well, and was therefore entitled uh, to be released. The ultimate ruling was against the petition. The New York Court of Appeals holds that the writ of habeas corpus is only available to human beings, And their reason is essentially circular. They say, well, it's only ever been granted for human beings in the past, and we're not going to expand that. And they essentially dismiss all of the arguments. But there are two dissents by two of the uh, two different judges who say, you know what? Uh, The writ of habeas corpus is flexible and ought to extend to Happy, whose captivity in the Bronx Zoo is really quite cruel, and there, there's a much better alternative here. There's m- lots more to say. That's, I'll stop there and maybe turn it over to Sherry to, to add more details. 
Yeah. So what I would say about, we, we did an amicus brief with Professor Lawrence Tribe and our, or at least my condition for being part of that was that I didn't want to do what um, many do in litigation with animals, which is to explain why the elephant is more entitled to freedom than other animals. And so I think the argument that, look, this is an elephant and she can do all these things that very few other animals can do, and therefore she should be freed, that kind of argument strikes me as an unjust argument, that the problem with keeping her in captivity is not that she has a very good long-term memory or that she's extremely intelligent, which she does and is, but the fact that she is sentient and that she is suffering. So our brief, I think, is free of the, you know, elephants are more entitled than other animals, you know, more equal than the other animals sorts of claims, which I think is part of the non-human rights project approach. And they tend to, at least so far, litigate on behalf of very charismatic and highly intelligent mammals and make arguments and kind of implicitly, I don't think it's explicit, but implicitly when you say, and I had an exchange with Stephen Wise about this once, but he he said he's only saying that these qualities that of extra intelligence and autonomy, which I don't think is even a quality, I think it's really something we give to someone, but anyway, said that that's just sufficient for rights, but not necessary. But I think when we argue that some quality is sufficient, we're arguing that it's relevant. And if it's relevant, then its absence is relevant. So I don't really think you can escape the so-called, you know, the, the, the animals that matter and the animals that don't matter. And just to be, I'm going to be the negative one, I guess, the bad cop in this, in this conversation, but there's a line. And I really like in many ways, really like Judge Wilson's and Judge Rivera's dissents. I think they're really powerful. And they talk about how, you know, African-Americans and women, children, really did not have the status of person in any meaningful sense. And yet courts saw fit to give them justice, even at a time, and it was sort of their Dred Scott was decided, and very shortly thereafter, um, there was a writ of habeas corpus uh, issued by states. So, so it's a it's a powerful tool. But I, I do think that it isn't really intelligence that makes some animals more entitled. Oh yes, and so I want to say that Judge Wilson at one point said, you know, some people say there won't be any dairy anymore. That's preposterous. And I think the three of us would say, I hope it's not preposterous. You know, it would be nice if. if there were no more dairy because that's horrific. And the implication was that there's something special about elephants that will not extend to any other uh, animals, including including to, to cows. And then there's also some discussion. And I think that the way that litigation is framed encourages this discussion among the dissenters about how, you know, domestic animals are different. So it's okay to hold domestic animals in captivity because that's their natural state. And actually, it's not okay to do that. And, you know, uh, 
just for the very same reason that you can bring happy from one confinement to a less restrictive environment and that that's appropriate for habeas, it also ought to be appropriate for habeas. So you take an animal who needs to be, say, cared for by humans and move them from a slaughterhouse to a sanctuary. So, so what I guess gets me, and maybe that makes me a less practical person, is that I, I don't like the idea of selecting p- particular animals and then saying, oh, don't worry, uh, this animal is, is special. And in any event, um, the case lost. At the same time, I'm really glad that there were the dissents because I think a lot of people will read them and will understand that it's not been that long since you know, men had complete dominance over women and could do whatever they wanted to them. And that what we do to animals is a reflection of that same kind of violent, sort of self-absorbed urge that if you allow people to express it, will they'll do so in in cruelty. Michael, can I just can I just ask you a question about that? Because I read your recent column for Justia's verdict, which I, I recommend to everyone. And you talk a lot about about this issue of the slippery slope, which, you know, is the issue that we either, I mean, as Sherry's talking about, maybe we should confront the issue of the slippery slope and talk about it. And others say, no, let's win this case. And, 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 and as you point out, we'll worry about the other cases later. And as you point out, this is this is a real problem for for lawyers in social justice movements generally. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. So um, this this is ubiquitous for what are sometimes called cause lawyers, right? Public interest lawyers, uh, whose goal in the case is not simply to win for their client, but also to have an impact. As we were talking before we went on air, that's why it's as you said, that's why it's called impact litigation. Uh, and what you do to change the law sometimes is you make a compromise, right? You realize that the judges are not prepared to go as far as you want them to go. But you calculate that if we can win this case, then we maybe can build on it as a precedent. And it does make you as a lawyer somewhat uh, dishonest is too strong a word for it, yeah. but it, but less than fully honest, right? That is to say, I'll give I'll give a few examples from other contexts. So both of which I mentioned in the in the column. So before Brown against Board of Education uh, reversed the separate but equal doctrine, the NAACP brought numerous cases in which they asked courts to rule that the existing segregated facilities were not equal. They said that, hey, separate but equal is the law of the land. These facilities are not equal. Equalize them. Now, of course, the NAACP wanted to say that segregation per se was unconstitutional, and they eventually got there. But the received wisdom is that part of how they got there was by making incremental moves. So first you say it's not actually equal, even though it but it's separate. And then you say separate is inherently unequal. Same thing with the uh, uh, marriage equality movement. There were the initial cases only were challenging, initially laws that sort of outlawed uh, same-sex sexual relations. Then there were uh, efforts to get civil unions and domestic partnerships, and then marriage. And so the, the strategy is that the judges are reluctant to go 
as far as you want until society seems to be ready to go along, but you can sort of move them along step by step. And so this is a very, very common phenomenon for lawyers. And there are always going to be people like Sherry who will say, uh, hey, uh, but you're selling out what you truly believe in. And sometimes they're right. That is to say, they're they're always right that that you're not being fully honest. But sometimes it might be the case that you get the half step and it never leads to the full measure of justice. And and that could entrench the existing injustices. I think the point I want to make about this is I think we're, we, we have to be sort of modest about what we know. Uh, I think there is a decent chance that this litigation, which doesn't even win on its own terms, will nonetheless move the ball forward a little bit, make it easier for the next elephant or the next chimpanzee, and that maybe eventually that will pave the way for cows and pigs and chickens and fishes and other animals. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, I agree with that. So I'm not denying that sometimes the one bite at a time is going to actually succeed in getting the whole apple. But I think that in a I don't know, in a litigation environment where you kind of have lost every single case you've brought on this theory of here's the special animal, that maybe if you're going to lose, you might as well make the full argument rather than saying, oh, don't worry, because the other animals have have no long-term memory or whatever it is. Like, I feel like, like, what are you getting? You're not even winning. I really am pretty sure that they never literally throw other animals under the bus. They they do couch this pretty carefully in in as as you pointed out, Michael, in saying, We're talking about elephants here, and then they just don't talk about other animals. Maybe maybe that's the wrong approach, but they don't actually say other animals are stupid. They just say elephants are smart in in shorthand. You're right. They don't expressly say that the other animals are not entitled to rights, but they do emphasize things about the elephant that other animals lack. So, you know, if you if you do that, then the implication is that having those qualities or lacking those qualities is relevant to rights. And so if somebody wanted to, I don't know, if you won and then somebody wanted to argue against you in the next case, they could say, look, look right here, like look at all these qualities that are considered to be relevant to having rights. So I don't think, so I think you're right. Like the briefs never say these animals, the other animals are stupid or they're not entitled, but by emphasis, it's kind of like if, if a bunch of people were lined up for being killed and they didn't do anything wrong. And then the argument you made for saving some of them was, well, look, these have a really high IQ. These people have a really high IQ. Yeah, you didn't say that others don't, but you know, it's impl- it's implicit. You know, I, I see your point. I just want I just didn't want people to have the wrong impression to think that uh briefs are filed saying cows are stupid and don't deserve oh, rights because right. that did not happen. Yeah. And I and I really want to hear from you both about your thoughts, and they may not be the same thoughts I'm beginning to realize about uh-huh steps forward. Every time something happens, it creates a different situation. I mean, it creates a different set of set of uh, basic history about where we are. And even though they're just a sentence, they're, you know, they're strong 
strong dissents in in a s- issue that hasn't been talked about before. So where does this leave us? What what are the best next steps? So my take on this, I think, is that litigation, especially impact litigation, is best employed, almost always is employed as part of a multi-forum strategy. So you litigate for at least four reasons. One is you hope to win for your client. And I should say that insofar as happy is the de facto client, um, there's a sense in which if you're a, a lawyer, you've got to do what it takes to win for your client. And that might mean uh, throwing other animals under the bus, um, right. e- even though we would think that that's problematic in all sorts of ways. So, so that's one. That's a huge problem for lawyers doing impact litigation. They have clients and they have a responsibility to those clients. Right. To make the best arguments those clients have. Right. So that so that's one goal is to win for this client. And, and again, your ethical obligation as a lawyer is to make that your primary goal. But you have other goals. You also want to move the law in a direction that you think is going to be productive. You can't always accomplish either of those things. It doesn't necessarily mean that the litigation is a failure. You can win or at least not lose by losing insofar as you raise public awareness, right? So that, you know, in connection with this litigation, there was a lot of public debate. There were articles written. Some of them, I I think, were ambiguous, uh, but I think the overall effect is to raise public awareness uh, and realization about the unfairness of the way we are treating elephants, but I think invariably other animals as well. And then the And then the fourth goal is to maybe convert that public awareness into change, both at the individual level, so maybe some of those people become vegan, and ultimately uh, at the legislative level, so that even the, the majority opinion, which is terrible, does say, well, you know, you should take this to the legislature. And insofar as there's powerful, some powerful language in some of the dissents, that's something that you can take to New York legislature, to Congress, et cetera. I mean, this isn't really next steps, but I was just thinking about what would, what I would do for a client like Happy if I were starting over from scratch. And I think, I mean, this is going to sound like really uh, throwing everyone under the bus, but I think I would try to negotiate with quietly with the Bronx Zoo to allow for her transfer to this sanctuary because I think they might have done that. Like it was because they were sued in this very kind of public condemnatory way that they dug in their heels and they made these arguments that, you know, they really have no interest in making with respect to elephants because they're ending their elephant captivity program. So I think that you know, so that would have been potentially more effective if, if the only individual we're thinking about is, is happy. Getting her out of there was not impossible and that this was not the way, like if you really would like your neighbor, you know, to stop doing something, the, the way to make that happen is not usually to bring a lawsuit against them and be in the front page of the New York Times or whatever. So that would be one, one thing that occurred to me is like, that would be focusing on her and what she needs, because the zoo is obviously not even committed to keeping elephants. And a lot of people, 
like it's it's easy in a sense. You talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, elephants, it's terrible that they do that. And so in a way, my first thought was it doesn't really challenge the paradigm to have this litigation. But then the dissenters made me realize just how, you know, every so often it occurs to you that, hey, like, wow, I am so at a different spot on the spectrum. Yeah, that's that's like every hour that occurs to me. (laughs) (laughs) Every hour of every day. Yeah. Well, that's so as I'm reading the dissents, I realize that this is maybe the first time they've really done a deep dive into sentience or not really sentience, but just, you know, animals and how we should feel about them. And even the idea that there's such a thing as injustice to an animal, that it's not just a matter of feeling sorry, but it's just not just what we're doing. And so in a way, those dissents give me pause on my on my theory that this litigation isn't really doing much because it did seemingly inspire at least two powerful people to start thinking about an issue in ways that may go beyond just the one species. Yeah, I I had exactly the same impression. Of course, we could be wrong. These people could have been interested in animal issues from from childhood or what, but I did not get that impression. I got the feeling that there this was a real discovery process for those judges and, you know, their their law clerks as well probably too. And that's why they ended up taking such a deep dive into into so many of the issues. So, I hope everybody reads them and if you haven't read them already and and considers both of your positions both where they match and where they don't match in the light of the decisions themselves and thinking about, well, of course, the Non-Human Rights Project will take their own next steps, but we also we all have to think about next steps. The whole world of animal protection law isn't sitting and just waiting to see what the Non-Human Rights Project is, is going to do next and shouldn't be. So so I think they should influence us all. It's really hap- I'm really happy happy that you came on to discuss the elephant in the room. Sorry, <laughs> sorry <laughs> about this case. It's a fascinating case. And I've read your column, Michael. I have not yet read your column, Sherry, which only came out this morning at, at, on the day that we're recording this. Really looking forward to doing it. I love all of the conversations going on about these cases. Any remarks to sum up? I thought it was interesting that the majority said that the comparison of Happy's situation to the situations of women and African-Americans is odious. And what's interesting is you then go to the dissenters, who I believe are respectively African-American and female, and they don't think it's odious at all. And they go into a really lengthy discussion of, you know, what the analogy is and how important it is. And really that we're talking about the oppressor. We're not saying that everybody is an elephant. It's sort of interesting that the majority, like sometimes the majority reads the dissent and then changes their opinion in response, but sometimes they don't. And this time it looked like he did not. Yeah, I worked in an appellate court for many years, and this looked like a decision that they were actually really annoyed with each other. For a number of years, I routinely attended uh, a kind of a grand litigation planning strategy among advocates who were championing LGBTQ plus rights leading up to the Supreme Court's eventual marriage equality decision. Uh, two things stand out, which was there was always a debate about, is this the right time? to bring the case, right? Because if you bring a case and you lose, that can set you back because it makes a negative precedent. And the 
the arguments were always the same, which were, was that people were, there were some people who were cautious and other people were saying, it's never the right time, so it's always the right time. And the other thing that stood out to me was, in some sense, the pointlessness of our gathering, because you would have all of the major organizations there, the Lambda, the ACLU's uh, project, various other organizations, but they could agree on a strategy. But litigation in the United States is completely decentralized. So they agree on a strategy. They say, like, oh, well, let's wait a few years. But meanwhile, somebody out in California hires a lawyer and they bring the case and now you're all in. And so, <laughs> yeah. so in, that, in, the, in that sense, the question of what are the next steps? The next steps are everything because somebody's going to do the thing and we just have to sort of then sort of rally around them and hope for the best. Right. And they might not do it as well as you could. So maybe you should just jump in. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. The more that happens, I think the better off animals are because the worst thing, the worst possible thing for them is silence. At least we've got people talking. Thank you for joining me to talk about it today. It's really such an important case. I'm so happy to have both of your insights. <laughs> 